That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, the college football television schedule is crawling out. NBC, Fox, and some others announcing uh, the Big Ten schedule, the Big 12 schedule. The Pac-12 won't be far behind. The Pac-12 will be rolling their schedule out, their TV times, uh, expected to be out middle of next week as ESPN uh, announces their non-conference games. First three weeks of the season, it'll be next week. I took a look at it today at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, whether you're a free subscriber, paid subscriber, you get those emails from me in real time. And then uh, about 7.30, 8.30 this morning, right in that window, I was working on this uh, on the non-conference games of the Pac-12. I'm really interested in a couple things. Number one, as I'm writing this piece this morning, I'm looking at the odds to win the Pac-12. I'm looking at Oregon State. I'm looking at Oregon. I'm looking at Utah, Washington, USC, the real favorites in this conference. And uh, I'm seeing some interesting trends that I want to talk about. Second thing was I started my ice on the schedule started drifting around. Obviously, Colorado opening the season in week one at TCU in a big football game that will be the big noon kickoff on Fox, uh, we are being told. Uh, You know, I am looking at that going, there's going to be a lot of rubbernecking happening because nobody's quite sure what to do with Coach Prime. By the way, Colorado is 100-1 to to win the Pac-12 conference at BetMGM. 100-1. to to win the conference. People don't believe they can get through the traffic of Oregon and USC. Uh, there's some value there. There's some intrigue there. But as if we have discovered on this show, either you believe that Colorado can uh, can win the Pac-12 and win 10 games, or you kind of believe that Colorado's going to struggle to win three. There's, no, there's nobody in the middle. I don't hear anybody walking around going, hey, Colorado might win seven this year. I don't hear that. But I'm hearing people go, you know what, they're going all the way. And I'm hearing other people say, no way. They don't come off a dismal year like they did last year. They don't join the you know, the, the, uh, the arms race with uh, Coach Prime and then waltz in and win 10 games. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do, and I think it's why that game at TCU uh, in the week one of the non-conference schedule, week one of the season, not week zero, but week one, uh, TCU gets that Colorado opener. Fox is going to be there. Some Big 12 fans will be looking over going, well, let's see what the Pac-12 is all about. I kind of hate that the uh, the Pac-12, Big 12 matchups aren't all the best teams from the Pac-12 against all the best teams from the Big 12. There are four matchups in non-conference play that involve those two conferences, and there's going to be a lot of intrigue and a lot of interest in that, those crossovers. Uh, Colorado plays TCU in week one. Utah goes to Baylor in week two. That'll be a good game. 
Uh, Oklahoma State plays at Arizona State in Week 2 as well. And then Oregon goes to Texas Tech in Week 2. I think the Pac-12 and the Big 12 will split those four games, two games apiece. I wrote about it today. I want you uh, your thoughts on that as well. Uh, and the comment section is fantastic on that piece because you get already a lot of people debating what is going to happen on that front. Um, it got me thinking, though, as I was looking at Oregon's non-conference schedule, Oregon State's non-conference schedule, I was just kind of looking for the best games, the best non-conference games that will happen in the Pac-12. And what struck me immediately was, you know, you don't have the Georgia game for Oregon. You don't have an Ohio State game for Oregon. Washington's playing uh, Michigan State in Week 3 on the road at Michigan State. Washington State is playing Wisconsin in Week 2. Those are interesting. Colorado goes uh, gets Nebraska at home in their home opener in Week 2. Um, but there's no Georgia, there's no Ohio State, there's no Alabama, there's no there's no premier game. USC starting with San Jose State, Nevada, and Stanford. They'll be three and zero heading into their bye week in uh, right after that Stanford win. But you know it, you don't get that premier game, and yet the narrative on the Pac-12 conference right now is that hey, it's a really good conference. They've got depth. They've got five teams that are going to be ranked. They have uh, a couple of contenders, probably in USC and Oregon first and foremost, and then maybe after that you're talking about Utah, Oregon State, Washington in the next breath uh, in the Pac-12. But the, you know the narrative being that this is a really good conference, and then absent uh, really the big-time matchup until Week 7 when USC goes to Notre Dame. USC is at Notre Dame Week 7. NBC released their TV schedule today. And that game will take place uh, October 14th at 4.30 on NBC. And I think USC is going to win that football game. But I also think that um, it'll be long after the narrative gets set for the conference. And I think the Pac-12 will have five ranked teams for, um, you know, four or five weeks until they start playing each other. In week five, Oregon State hosts Utah. That's when it starts to happen. And then week six, week seven, week eight, you start to get the crossover games with Oregon and Washington and Utah and USC and everybody starts to play each other. But here's what struck me, a big takeaway, long, winding, uh, rambling uh, entry into what I really want to talk about. I, you know, I, I, we've, we've been talking about, like, the most fun you've had or the player that, that you enjoy watching the most. We've done these kind of topics, and, and I like having these conversations because it's interesting to me to get to know you a little bit. And also it reminds me of all the great players in college football and in athletics that we've seen. But I was looking at the non-conference games, and I was going, gosh, you know, if you are a fan of some of these teams, is it as important as it was maybe uh, in other years where there is great crossover non-conference matchups that draw you to buy season tickets? Is it, I guess I'm asking, is it as important to be there as it used to be? Let me, let me just unpack that a little bit. Because I've talked about the competition of your living room from a TV standpoint, uh, that competition is fierce. You're at home, you're watching football games. We're all getting we're getting all these TV times right now. It's evident that like television is driving the bus in college athletics. Like it's it's apparent, right? Like no, there's nobody there's nobody going. Well, is college drive is TV driving the bus? No, everybody knows it's driving the bus. Everybody knows that the TV gets to pick their games first and the non-conference games are all being set up for like, okay, how do we draw maximum audience and all this stuff? But if the Pac-12 is not playing premier games, if they're not getting 
Ohio State to come to Autzen Stadium as they were scheduled to do in the pandemic. If you're not getting Michigan or Oklahoma coming to Autzen Stadium, if you're Oregon State and you're not able to get you know a high-profile non-conference opponent at your place, uh, clearly there's uh, you know you're, there's a disincentive to buy season tickets, and we've seen that uh, that weighed in a number of ways with people saying, well, I don't want to go to 7 p.m. kickoffs or I don't like, uh, you know, the money that it costs. The tickets are expensive. Uh, but I'm also kind of one left wondering about the schedule itself and and whether or not fans are going, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not as important for me to be there. And I say that knowing, like I, I was thinking about this earlier as I was looking at the schedule, and I say that knowing that we just had a conversation the other day about your favorite player to watch in person. And part of watching that favorite player, sure, you can see them on television, but part of it, too, is being in the arena or being in the stadium or being on site to see that player play. And so I guess what I want to ask you today off the top of the show is, is it as important to you to see your favorite players, to see your favorite teams up close? Is it a case of, hey, it's you know we can buy tickets and go see one game this season or that season? Is it a case of, no, I absolutely have to be there because my parents had season tickets and my grandparents had season tickets and this is what we do in our family? I think there's a really complex and interesting conversation to be had on this front because I think part of it is about, hey, we're busier than ever. At least we feel busier than ever with kids and youth sports and um, you know people working long work weeks and we are also watching in the, you know, the rise of inflation and an uncertain economy, and people are going, hey, you know, I don't know, maybe you're, you're having conversations about, hey, maybe we don't take a vacation this summer, or maybe instead of going uh, you know, uh, with an airfare, we're driving somewhere. And I don't know if you're having those conversations. And so I guess I kind of wonder about sports fans. Are you having conversations about, hey, maybe we don't buy season tickets this year, or are you already in? Because all the Pac-12 schools I talk to, said that their renewal rates were at like 88 to 95%. Utah's got a season ticket wait list that has 2,000 names on it. Like, Utah's not worried about having an empty seat this season, next season, or beyond. Uh, but there are some worries in, in corners of this conference. I think Oregon would like to sell a few more season tickets, and I think if anybody tells you that they're not interested in that, they're lying to you. I think Oregon State would obviously love to have sellouts for every game. I think Washington State, you know, Washington State's got Wisconsin coming to Pullman. It's a really unusual uh, opportunity for Washington State to have that kind of schedule. So I guess Washington State can stand tall today and go, hey, we're playing somebody. But the home schedule, like for Washington, includes Boise State, Tulsa, and Cal uh, to start the season. And they don't start hosting good games until they get Oregon at home in Week 7. Maybe the Oregon game is enough to sell the Huskies. Maybe maybe Michael Penix Jr. and Kalen DeBoer coming off an 11-win season is enough for Husky fans to go, hey, I'm in. But I'm kind of wondering from your standpoint, I want to do a little market research. Is it as important to you to be in the stadium as it used to be? And if your answer is no, tell me what that's about. 503-417-7575. Because you may tell me, hey, I'm getting older. I don't like driving on I-5. I don't like being, uh, you know, up up at midnight, 1 a.m., coming back from a game. Uh, you may tell me, hey, my television set, my HDTV, 
and my surround sound and my sofa and the refrigerator being there is just too much for me to to ignore. Like the experience that television is providing has made being at the game not as important. And it, and if and here's another one. Like I I lament like you know, I'm not a big music person, but I like I like the fact that I've seen like Elton John perform in person, okay? I like the fact that, you know, I've been to some con- Billy Joel. I I've been to some concerts. I saw MC Hammer back in the day, okay? I'll admit that. But I but you know, I regret that I never saw Michael Jackson in person. Like who might be the greatest performer of all time? Now I've seen documentaries about him. I've listened to his music. You know, I had a Sony Walkman uh recorder the the old school Sony Walkman back in the day. I had the Thriller cassette. I used to walk around and put that thing on my head and I could listen to Thriller all day long. But I never saw Michael Jackson perform in person and there's some part of me that goes, "Gosh, man, that's I wish I would have got a chance to see him perform." You know, does that hold up in sports anymore? Like is it okay to just see LeBron James on TV? Or if LeBron comes to town, are you clamoring going, hey, maybe we should get tickets to this thing? I want to hear from you on that front and on the Pac-12 TV front at 503-417-7575. Steven, you're on the board today, as always, air traffic controller. Help me out with this, because you're a diehard sports fan. Is it important to be there? And from a college football standpoint, are the teams giving uh, fans enough reason to buy tickets and go to the games? I think for me... Um, when a player's in college, I don't necessarily have to see them. Like, I want to see them in the pros. Like, you talk about LeBron. Like, I saw him this past year, and it was awesome. I think it's I think it's something that you need to see. But when they're in college, that they're not at their peak powers yet. And so I don't necessarily think you have to see them. But I do think that they are doing enough to get you to the stadium. Because it is, especially in college football, like, it is a, it's a different environment, right? Like, it's not like the NFL. It's not professional, like, you can feel the love and the passion like all these fans have for their school, for their alumni, and it's just a different feeling. So I do think that there is still a spot for live sporting events if you do care about a team. If you love a college, you love a sport, you need to go see those teams. For me, like I don't really root for a college team in particular, so I don't necessarily feel like I have to be there for those games, and the TV experience is so good like I can flip back and forth. But I feel like as a, you know, as a big NBA guy, as a basketball guy, I do want to see all these, you know, legends play in person if I can. I think it'd be it's really fun because you can, you know, appreciate the greatness when they're at their peak power. But in college, I think it's a little different because they're just not necessarily at that peak uh, of their skill set yet. I've wondered if that would change because I agree with you. I think people, in, you know, college football fans. I think people root for teams. They root for schools. They root for programs. Maybe it's your alma mater. Maybe it's just the school that. Your grandfather or your father grew up uh, rooting for your mom, and uh, you know, or maybe uh, maybe you have a kid going to one of those schools, so you become a fan of that school. But you root for schools, and in in the pros, you uh, you do root for players at times, and especially visiting players, there is a passing interest in them. I think Adrian Wojnarowski said it on the the NBA draft lottery night. He said that Victor Wembanyama may never play in front of an empty seat in his NBA career, home or away. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily agree that that's going to be true, but I think that it's an interesting thought because, you know, while USC comes to town and Oregon State fans uh, go, hey, this is a big game, and they show up, uh, I don't think there's the same sort of appeal, like, I got to go see Caleb Williams. But do you think NIL and this gravitation or this movement towards 
the college game looking a little bit more like the pros will change any of that. Do, do you think people will go, like, I got to see Caleb Williams before he turns pro? I think he potentially could. And we've talked about this, like, the game is going to get better. Like, the the actual talent and the actual skill on the field is going to be better even this year. But I think going forward with these guys returning back to schools, especially the quarterbacks, like, yeah, like, Bo Nix is coming back for another season. Most likely, you know, five, six years ago, he would have been gone. He would have been in the NFL, been a fourth-round pick, and been fine with it. But instead, he's coming back. And I think now, if you're an opposing team and Oregon's coming into town, like, you want to see Bo Nix. You want to see those type of guys play. So I think potentially it could, John, where the NIL brings back some of these you know, college stars, because there's a big difference between being really good in college and being good in the NFL or the NBA. And we're going to recognize some of these guys like, oh, this guy had a big NCAA tournament run. I kind of want to see him. Or this guy had a big Rose Bowl. I want to see this guy. I think there is potential for, you know, that to kind of come back to the college game where we find these villains in college football and college mm-hmm. basketball. We want to see them because that's what we want to see, right? It's not even the guys that we'd like. It's a lot of times the villains, you know, it's the Duke, it's, you know, USC, it's Caleb Williams. Like, I want to see them lose. I want to see my team beat them. I think it could happen. I'll tell you that my eight-year-old, who's soon to be nine, she happened to be at the Oregon State-USC game last year. We have season tickets to both Oregon and Oregon State, and I generally give them away. And I, I uh, sometimes we'll give them away on air, but you know, because I don't, I don't sit in the seats. But sometimes Anna will say, "Hey, I want to go to the game," and they wanted to go to the USC game. And the USC players at the end of the Oregon State-USC game. Three or four of the players went out onto the middle of the field, and they started doing sort of snow angels on the field and pretending to be body surfing. And and the eight-year-old was fired up, and to the point where she's asking me at the end of the college football season: A, she's rooting against USC in the title game against Utah, and B, she's asking me: Do they play at Oregon State next year? And I'm like, No, they probably never come back to Oregon State. But man, she wanted she wanted that that revenge in that villain way. But I'll tell you. She had to be there to get that. You don't get that on TV. And so I'm wondering, you know, like I'm not advocating for everybody to go plunk down hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to buy season tickets because it's expensive. And, and uh, you know, I just don't think that it, it's realistic for a lot of people to say, oh, I'm going to just go buy season tickets. But, but I wonder about people who never get to go see a game. And that's why when we give away the tickets, I often say, hey, I want to hear from somebody who – has never been to a game, or maybe their kid's never been to a game, because I want them to have an experience they've never had. And I just wonder, from peop- from the standpoint of our listeners, it, as they're hearing this conversation, it may just be, hey, your television is great, uh, you don't like dealing with drunk people at the stadium, you, are, uh, you don't like the hassle of the traffic, there is a uh, prohibitive cost, television uh, is cheaper and better than ever, the quality of the broadcast is fantastic and the camera work, what is it about? Four one seven seventy five seventy five in the five zero three area code. Let's go to Jerry, who is in Silverton. Jerry, what do you got? Hey, John. Hey, um, good, interesting topics as usual. So I just drove yesterday two hours to a game and then two hours back. And I would say every parent and every grandparent should do that as much as they can because it was to my grandson's game. And you cannot put a price on when I see him catch the ball, which is a big enough deal at age seven, and then when I see him also, uh, you know, get a hit, and then I go and say to him, Reggie, I saw you catch that ball. You know, it's not about what how cool I thought it was. It's about what that does for their development of their self-esteem. So anyway, 
But to the, your point about the other stuff, uh, you know, for me, uh, basketball still live, um, although I don't do it often, but it's still a pretty, pretty big deal because, you know, whether you're five nine or whether you're six one or whatever, or or whatever, you get to see more realistically up close how big these people are. And I've been a you know fan for many years, but nonetheless, you see that. But then the the grunting and the squeaking of the shoes and the yes. smacking of the ball when they just rip down a rebound. TV still doesn't capture that. And then the other thing that somebody mentioned, your own alma mater, like if, like for me, it'd be an Oregon State game, uh, and you're there, uh, you're not going to relive the student experience right. to, totally well, some, when you're no some longer adults a student do. many some decades later, do. but still. Yeah. Some adults do try to relive the student experience. I've seen them stumbling around the uh, stadium. Uh, all right, so the question then, Jerry made me think about something else, like just to pivot off it. I still want your phone calls. Um, you know, what do you get from being at the stadium that you can't get at home? And what do you get from being at home that you can't get at the stadium? 503-417-7575. What do you get from being at the stadium, actually at the stadium versus uh, being at home? You tell me, has it changed over the years? 503-417-7575 is a phone number. Uh, coming up, uh, uh, the NCAA has released their financial filings for the years, and we've got a sports business reporter here to talk about what it means and what he sees. But before that, Dre in Portland's called in. Dre, welcome back, man. Jay, appreciate it. You know, for me, the older I get, the more I hate being around a lot of people. Especially, no, I'm I'm just keeping it real. I'm keeping and and, and especially drunk people. You yeah. know, I I stopped drinking like three years ago, and being around people that drink a lot, and and then just feeling like I'm so far removed from college. You know yeah. what I mean? Like my daughter, she's 21. Her and her boyfriend love going to the games. Right? 25, 30 years ago, if you said you had a ticket for me, I'm there. I've turned down tickets lately. Like, I don't, I, I can watch it from, from my house, feel comfortable, let the dogs out, check on the grill, do whatever I need to yeah. do, right, from, from my house. So, for me, it's, I, I think it's, it's the age. I just feel so far removed for, from it. But real quick, Jay, I got to say, I love your show, man, but talking about football with this great weather. I know. You're bringing back bad memories of, like, September, <laughs> October, November, Jay. Can, can we talk about some tennis? All right. Golf, little pickleball? You want, do you have pickleball in your life? Do you have love in your heart for pickleball, Dre? I don't like pickleball, man. <laughs> Too much noise. But I do, I do enjoy I do. You sound like an old tennis. man now. What happened to you? <laughs> I, I do enjoy tennis. I do enjoy tennis. Okay. Thanks okay. for the time, Jay. I appreciate All it. All right. There's Dre. <laughs> Dre's right. I'm not going to lie. I understand that. Um, you know, I used to I used to like being at the shopping mall. I used to like going to the mall, getting an Auntie Annie's pretzel, walking around. I don't even need to buy anything. I like being there. Now I go, I got to go to the mall. <laughs> I understand what Dre's saying about the stadium. You got to go. You got to deal with people. You got to park. You got to get into the stadium. Then you're looking around and you feel like you're the old guy at the bar. I can remember graduating from college and uh, my younger sister, who's seven years younger than me, went to the same college. And so when I went back for her graduation, 
So it's literally like, you know, uh, seven years, eight years after I graduate, I go back and, you know, find myself in that old college town. You know what I'm talking about. You walk in and you realize, like, the bouncer's still there, same guy at the door, but all the people are so young. When did all these young people get here? Uh, I understand that from Dre. And, and my own father, I'll tell you this, it's kind of a pain to get my dad to do anything. We try to bring him up. Like, we got him to come up recently on Mother's Day weekend for a visit, and he doesn't like leaving his house and his chair and his TV and his dog. And I think that comes with age. We almost have to bribe him to be here. I say, okay, I'll pay for your airfare. Uh, when you get here, we don't have to do anything. You know, we'll just do what you want to do. We gotta, we gotta convince him to be here. Uh, let's go to the phones. Chris is in West Lynn. Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot for taking my call. Yeah, you bet. It's been a long time duck fan. In fact, I grew up uh, as a Boy Scout with uh, Dan Bouts was uh, quarterback. So the memories of me as kid was great. And you know, when I go to, I get goosebumps, man. When I go to the Oregon games, I mean. And the last couple of years, I have season tickets live in West Lynn, and, and I've just said, yeah, I really don't want to do it. But it's it's a bonding time. And my son, he's 35 and a big duck fan, and, and we get four tickets, and we go down, and we just have a great time, you know. And so uh, I, there's so much to it. And this year was the first year I went to the spring game, and that was really cool. I mean, for family atmosphere and yep. kids, you know, really open up their eyes and see what it's all about. But you know, I do love watching TV on uh, watching it on TV, but uh, you know, the, get a but, chance to go to the let game. Let me interrupt you here. I want to interrupt you here. I want to interrupt you. So let me ask yep. you: Are you telling me that when you go with your kid, is it about being at the stadium, or is it just about being with your kid? It's a combination. It's a, it's a family thing. I grew up as family down down there, but uh, it's just us getting together, and uh, my other brothers and stuff are down there, so we just. Uh, but I love the Ducks. I mean, so I go to that, and I go to the other games, when the away games, like I'll go up to Washington game. You know, that Florida State game down the Rose Bowl was one that you could never miss. Um, so been to quite a few road games. But, you know, you only, I spend my money on certain things, and to go down there and spend the weekend down there just makes it a great time. So Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I hear that. Like, I hear that it's it's about the experience. And I'll be honest, like, for me, I'm at the stadiums. I'm there because it's my job. Um, uh, I think one day when it's not my job, it'll be maybe a little different experience. But I really like when I see other people uh, at the game. And, and my, of course, my kids and my wife and my oldest daughter, who is, you know, a, a big, you know, fan. She's a supporter and she likes basketball. She likes football. She likes being at games. Very social kid. It's probably more social for her than anything. But I, I kind of live vicariously in that way. I'll be honest, when I park my car in the parking lot at Autzen Stadium or Research Stadium, and I'm walking through the parking lot, um, I'm watching you guys. I'm watching you tailgate. I'm watching you play catch. Uh, sometimes you're playing cornhole. Sometimes you're just standing around. Um, you know, some people are doing it fancy. You have like a, you have like a cloth, uh, tablecloth, and you're, uh, you're, uh, you know, you got little toothpicks in the kielbasa, and you're uh, serving them on a platter. Other people are eating a hot dog wrapped in tin foil, drinking a drinking a Coors Light, like you know whatever whatever does it for you. But I'm often you know left thinking like, am I the only person who goes to the stadium alone? Am I the only person who leaves my house and drives the two hours or whatever it is with traffic it, to those games and arrives like party of one? Like when you walk into a restaurant, there's nothing I hate more. 
when you walk into a restaurant and the hostess or the host greets you and I and and we've all been guilty of this but they look at you and they go just one just one that's what they say just one today and I always go just like come on like it it's just me it's party of one and so I I am I'm often left a little envious of those of you who go to the games and especially envious of those of you who probably invest a larger portion of your disposable income to jump on a plane and go to a road game. Like I've met a lot of fans when I'm traveling to go see Oregon or Oregon State play at Arizona State or Arizona or USC or UCLA or wherever, Utah even in the conference. Um, there's always fans on the plane. I always love talking to people, meeting them, and I, I ask them. I'll say, like, you know, do you do you know someone on the team? Or, no, 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 me and my dad just, we pick one game every year. We go to the road game. And and to me, Chris and West Lynn gets it because, to me, I hear them saying it like, this is kind of what we do. This is our thing. And and that's great. Like, maybe maybe other people play golf. Maybe other people own a boat. Maybe other people love to run 5K runs together as a family. Whatever your thing is, you know, you have a thing that's awesome. But I just think it's really interesting when I see sports fans coming up with a thing that is theirs. I think that's really cool um, and interesting and and fun. I want to pivot a little bit in this segment. As uh, yesterday we talked about the $5.7 million shortfall at Washington State. Before I end this segment, I got I got to talk about this just for a second. But you have Washington State saying that they're going to put a freeze on hiring, a freeze on uh, travel, non non essential travel, a freeze on professional development, and basically they're going, hey, um, they're signaling to the to the uh, to the state of Washington and to uh, their fans that hey, um, we're going to have a deficit. There are other Pac-12 schools that are going to run lean or run up against a deficit. Some won't. Um, uh, I think Nick Daschle reported that Oregon State is not going to show a deficit, that Oregon State is going, hey, we're going to be okay. And I think, in part, Oregon State is uh, doing that because Oregon State gets student fees. And Oregon State's student body you know, is investing in athletics, gets it. Um, Oregon State is also um, obviously – involved in a huge capital uh, expenditure and a big project with the west side of Research Stadium. But part of the deal or part of the financing of that is they they absorbed some other debt that they had in the process. And so, you know, they're consolidating their debt. And I think Oregon State financially is in a pretty good position. I, you have to give Scott Barnes some credit there at Oregon State for, for doing that and being creative in doing that and his team. But, um, you know, USC and Washington, uh, not necessarily going to have those troubles, except, you know, Christian Capel, uh, who covers Washington today. Um, you know, I read his piece right before the show, and he is saying that, you know, they Washington has issues, even though we all think of Washington as a university that's got do great donor base, plenty of funding. You know, they're not like Washington State. Uh, Washington State is, you know, in trouble. But... Cable had pointed out, like, Washington is still paying Jimmy Lake. Uh, they had to uh, go way out of pocket to keep their offensive coordinator two raises. They gave Kalen DeBoer a million-dollar raise last season during the season. And all of a sudden now you're adding on top of that that, you know, they got to come up with essentially $5.7 million in the next 18 months 
to make the Comcast uh, fiasco and the $10 million payment that the conference had to give to uh, return the headquarters of downtown San Francisco into a normal office space. So Washington's even having to go, hey, wait a minute, we got to be more, we got to be some, we got to be careful here in how we spend. Um, Colorado is saying they don't have the money. Colorado's chancellor saying, you know, hey, this is going to be a real problem. Uh, they don't have the money. But I, I think part of it is that we're in this time of college athletics where there is a separation of the haves and the have-nots. Uh, from 20,000 feet, there is a separation between these conferences. The SEC is not the same as the Big 12. The Big 10 is not the same as the Pac-12. Sure, as Chris Hill, the former Utah AD on yesterday's show, pointed out, if you're in the Pac-12 and getting roughly you know, 60% of uh, the revenue that a Big 10 member is getting, you can still compete. There are areas, though, where you're going to have to be smart about things. And I think it's really interesting to kind of have this conversation about do you need to be at the stadium while we're also having a conversation in the background about, hey, um, these universities that have built $100 million renovations to their stadiums and given their football coaches, you know, four, five, six, ten million dollars a year, uh, and hiring their coordinators now, giving them a million dollars plus. Um, now these schools are are uh, in a little bit of trouble, and I and I am left going like, well, duh. I mean, look at how you are doing business. No, no, no reasonable person would run their household the way you run a football program. Uh, Turk one eighty two is called in as he often does. Turk, what's up, man? Hey, Johnny Ballgame, a.k.a. Guy Bannister, my man. How you doing? <laughs> doing all right. What's going on? All right. Hey, I think you made a great point about the whole dynamics of, like, sports and college football or college sports with the finances. Because you look at teams on the West Coast compared to teams in, like, let's say the SEC or the ACC. Like, SEC, take teams like Arkansas, Mississippi. What else do they have? That's, that's all they have, right? Yeah. They don't have yeah. sports there. So their money goes into that. But you go to the West Coast, even when, like, Stanford was, like, on top of their game, they still wouldn't sell up the stadium because why? There's other things to do. The beach is 30 minutes to the right. The mountains are, you know, three hours to the uh, you know north to go skiing. And there's other stuff to do. So they got to find ways to finance these teams better. And how do you do that? And I don't yeah. have the answer for it. That's why I'm calling you. Yeah, look, have you been to an Arkansas football game? I'm curious. Yeah, twice. All right. What's the atmosphere like when you look around the stadium, it, the tailgate, all of that? It is so welcoming, and it is so fun. And they say, where are you from? You say, California. You think you're going to get your butt kicked? And, like, come on in. Have some food. And they're just <laughs> they're just so welcoming. It's unbelievable. I think it's cultural though, because I, I would I would venture to say like I've been to I've been to Starkville and see a game. I've been to LSU. Uh, I've been uh, where else have I been down there? I've been uh, not not the SEC, but I've been to Florida State, Tallahassee, um, and some other places. But it to me it's generational. Like you know you, you those tailgates where they're welcoming you in. I want to say that their parents and grandparents and great grandparents probably tailgated in the same spot. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's just and, and you know my my sister and husband just moved to Tennessee a year ago, and they go to the games there, and it's just like they're like it's incredible. Yeah. It's just a, such a, an atmosphere that you've never seen before. Turk, I appreciate the call. There's Turk one eighty two. Nice reference. I like that. 
So, yeah, I, I think he's onto something there, though, because I noticed that, you know, I covered the Big Ten in 1998, 1999. So I was all over the Big Ten. I went to Wisconsin. I went to Ohio State. I even uh, went over when Purdue, I was watching, covered a whole bunch of Purdue games, Indiana, uh, Illinois, um, Michigan State, Michigan. I was in all those stadiums and around those fan bases. And I even went over to South Bend to cover a Notre Dame game. And what I noted was I had grown up on the West Coast. I had grown up with Pac-12 football. And it wasn't just that the stadiums were bigger, because they were. You know, those were large stadiums. It wasn't just that the teams were, um, you know, had a higher profile or a better brand than a lot of the Pac-12 schools. Also true. It wasn't, you know, people always say SEC fans are unhinged. To a point they are. But to me, the thing that was different, even about the Big Ten and certainly about the SEC, is that it was part of the culture. It was part of family history. This is just what they did. You know, it wasn't a question, do we buy season tickets this year? It was, hey, uh, first game, who's making the mimosas? Like, it was just, like, it's a foregone conclusion. It's just what you do. And I think that is generational. It's cultural. And you get on the West Coast. Think about who you have on the West Coast, okay? Just from a simple standpoint, you have a lot of transient uh, fans who are moving West. You don't have quite the history you know, as, uh, you know, people settled in the United States, where did they settle first? They settled in the East. They came West. And I think that is in play when you look at this as just natural migration of people coming West, and you don't have the connection that is generational to games. And, oh, look out. You put your head up now and you look at Stanford. How is somebody supposed to connect with Stanford if you're a Bay Area transient person? You don't have that connection. Your grandparents didn't live there. Your grandparents lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, your parents uh, moved there when you were a kid. You don't have a connection to Stanford. You don't go to Stanford. I think it's really difficult to say, hey, uh, you know, this is our thing when it's brand new. And I always joke with Anna, like we go into a restaurant or we'll go to some place that I enjoy. Like let's say you go into a new restaurant or a new experience and I'll, I'll turn to her and before I can even say it, she'll go, I know this is your new place. That's what I say. But in the South and in Big Ten country, there are no new places. It's That's the place my grandparents went. This is what we did. And it, and it extends really to college football. But, you know, we always say, oh, they're unhinged. Oh, they lose their minds. It's true because it's ingrained in what they do. And so if you're a Pac-12 fan, what you have to have is, you know, I think you fostered it in certain pockets of the Pac-12. Like I think Oregon has done a really nice job in sort of making it, hey, this is what we do, this is what we do generationally. But if I was Oregon and taking a long view or Oregon State and taking a long view, I would look over at Utah and I, because Utah has the, a similar thing where it's just sort of like there's almost ingrained in the culture of Salt Lake City is you're either a Utah fan or a BYU fan. And it, Washington State could do it, but I think you have to work really hard as an entity to kind of foster that generational thing or – You've got to look over at an entity like the Portland Timbers and the Thorns, and you have to study it and go, okay, what did they do? What did they do that connected them so deeply or richly with their fan base that made it like it was a thing that happened for generations when it really wasn't? Good topic. Love the call from Turk182. Go spray paint that on the side of the wall somewhere. All right, leave it here. The big splash is coming up. Well, I appreciate everybody who listens to this radio show. Um, 
I do. I really do. Wherever you are, I appreciate that you make it part of your day. Uh, Stephen, uh, the weather is nice outside. Dre pointed that out earlier this hour in a phone call. And I'm bringing him down by talking college football. What's what's wrong with thinking about college football on a nice sunny day? Like, you know, I like a nice sunny day. Yeah, I feel like I disagree with Dre. I think it's happiness upon happiness, right? Like happy outside, and then we're thinking about what's going to be happening in the fall. I'm happy all over. Like it. Yeah, be happy. There you go. It brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, this is kind of a tense story. A little bit scary. Police in Tennessee conducted a welfare check on uh, Memphis Grizzlies star John Morant today he he had posted some cryptic messages on his instagram account uh it turned out uh, he's just taking a break from social media but uh, earlier today morant posted and then deleted messages and pictures that said love you ma with a blue heart emoji love you pops blue heart emoji you the greatest baby girl blue heart emoji and then he followed those with a post that simply said bye the Shelby County Sheriff's Office uh, did a welfare check at John Morant's home uh, this morning. Apparently he's fine. Morant uh, has been suspended from all team activities following a video of him holding a gun. Um, at the time of the uh, suspension, his first suspension, he told uh, he told ESPN that he, he understands what he had to lose. He would try to be more responsible. He left the counseling program in March. And uh, was suspended eight games, and now um, the All-Star is again suspended after flashing a handgun in a car. Video has been deleted, but uh, I want to say something here. Like, I do, th- I think John Morant probably there's a cry for help in there somewhere. Like, I don't want to judge somebody on their, on their social media posts. Maybe he just is saying, I'm getting off social media. But um, the way he's doing that, either suggests to me that he's got uh, a lack of judgment where he's just not understanding how he is coming off, period, on social media, or there is a cry for help in there somewhere, and uh, I hope the people close to him can get to him. I have felt for a long time like a lot, you know, we all need people in our lives. Like John Morant needs somebody in his inner circle who he trusts who can tell him, hey, uh, do you need some help? What's going on? And, you know, you know. Anna made the comment the other day or this morning. I picked her up, her and her dad up at the airport, flying back from Taiwan, and uh, they arrived in the United States. Uh, her her father had not seen our children since they were babies, and uh, Anna said that you know when they were leaving Taiwan, they had a they had a layover in in uh, in San Francisco. And in San Francisco at the airport, there was a lady trying to buy a bagel at this airport shop that was losing her mind. She was just being, like, ridiculously dramatic, uh, whole Karen scene. And she said, I don't think people are okay. Like, I don't think people in America are okay. Like, you know, did the pandemic affect a faction of people? Sure. Did it affect the economy? Yes. Did it affect, um, you know, people's view of the world? Yes. But mentally, mental health is uh, such an issue right now. 
and has been, I think, for several years now with people like to the point where like, you know, counselors and mental health systems are overloaded and overworked. And I especially think that people who are in a position like John Morant, let's have a little empathy here. Um, I think it's possible to have empathy for somebody who has a $194 million max contract. I think you could still look at him and go, he's 23, he's acting um, erratically. It's not quite on the level of like Antonio Brown, but there are some undertones there that, you know, tell you, hey, there's some judgment or there's something going on with mental health or he's got bad people around him. Whatever the case is, he needs somebody in that inner circle who's can, who, can, uh, who knows him who he trusts, who can, you know, maybe try to do something to help him. But uh, apparently he is telling police, or he told the sheriff's de- deputy, that he's just taking a break from social media after posting on social media some pretty ominous comments. You know, Stephen, if you posted those things on social media, I would do a welfare check on you. Yeah. Like, I, I would be like, are you okay, man? Totally agree. And I think I think the whole situation is just sad because John Rant's so talented um, and he didn't necessarily learn the lesson from the first time. So you just hope that, like you said, someone can get in his ear, someone can get in his head and say, you know what, you're, you're throwing away a $194 million contract. Like, it's not even about just, like, the money. It's just about your life and livelihood. So, you know, I would agree with you. You know, the pandemic might have to do with it, but uh, John's got to figure it out. John needs to figure it out, and the people around him – you know, whoever's around him, um, you know, needs to uh, try to get to him. Uh, coming up, we're going to play Punch and Audio. And Daniel Libet of Sportico, um, who is all over the NCAA, is going to join us to talk about what he's learned from looking at their financial filings. How, how, uh, how in tune is the NCAA? How much money are they making anyway? Uh, we'll talk about it in hour two. I tweeted out the news earlier. Uh, this radio show, we've been on air since what 2007 really labor day weekend 2007 uh multi-year extension for the bft radio show you're stuck with us for a couple few more years and sorry about that if you don't if you're one of these people that tunes in because you don't like me bad news for you you're stuck with me if you do like this show good news for you we're going to be here for a while won't be here forever i'm not that guy but I appreciate everybody who listens to the show. I appreciate everybody who contributes. Of course, Judah, Stephen, the crew there, Keith, all the people over the years who have uh, who have worked on the show and contributed and made it better. Chop, Fletcher Johnson, John Strong, the voice of American soccer. So many other people. Cadillac Chris Brown still listens to the show. Instrumental. Alabama Adriana. Maddie. Maddie reads the news. Kiki, the exotic dancer. Shout out to the exotic dancers out there who listen to the show. Uh, I appreciate everybody. The dirty little secret on Kiki, the exotic dancer, who used to come on the show every Friday, is that she wasn't an exotic dancer. She was quite the opposite of an exotic dancer. But uh, it made for good radio. It was fun. Ernest Ernie, may he rest in peace. Everybody who's contributed. Over the years, the callers especially, listeners, you, yes, you out there listening right now, I thank you for being here and being part of the radio show because you do contribute. So we are uh, we're here a while longer, and uh, I'm happy about that. I normally don't like to put that stuff out on social media, but I, I felt like, um, you know, why not tell our loyal listeners 
that we're going to be here for a while. And I appreciate the the listeners who are out there that that make this show part of their day. Of course, I uh, owe a lot to Bob Prophet, the uh, head of Alpha Media, who believed in me a long time ago, probably before uh, the show could it was worth a damn. And uh, Lisa Decker, Jeff Moyer, and uh, all the uh, managers that are with Alpha. But, uh, you know, Stephen, you too, you and Judah, man, I really appreciate you guys, and I appreciate the work that you guys do, and you make it fun. Well, I appreciate that, John. I, I have had a lot of fun on this show since I joined uh, at the end of June, so it's almost been a year for me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean I've been around this area the whole, you know, my whole life. So, you know, I, I was around when you, know, you first started. I knew about you. So, you know, be, to be on this show, you know, it's kind of cool. I have friends that I meet, and they'll say, I didn't like you when I when I first heard you. I didn't like you. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't get to say that to anybody. I'm pretty I sure get... my dad has said that to me about you. <laughs> he's not like that guy, but now that I'm on the show, I think he likes you. Yeah, he's like, oh, he's not so bad now. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> I think the best part is that, like, I think what people are saying when they say that is, I, I didn't agree with something that you said that I cared about. You didn't. You said something about my team. Or you said because I've had a I've had a number of people who will start with me going I don't like you and we talk for about four minutes and then they go oh you're not so bad and I think the radio shows it helped me too because the sports columns it's a harder thing you're, there's there's an arm's length especially when you're at a newspaper they really make you take an arm's length from your readers that you're you don't you can't quite get to the readers that's why i like writing my own column now because i can have a more conversational uh approach i can write about my six-year-old seven-year-old trying to learn to ride her bike i can write about anna's mother and uh you know how thankful i am that she helped raise her and i can you know i can write about things that are not necessarily sports related and i don't have an editor telling me you know stay in your lane so to speak um and i like the radio show that way because it's just very free flowing like you know the show sheet that i sent out today it literally had in hour number 1 it had three words in hour number 2 there were more because we have a guest Hour three, I think there are four words on the show sheet. This is not scripted stuff, and and I don't always know where it's going to go. I have kind of a general idea. I have a notepad next to me. I have a general idea of what I want to do, but I just I appreciate the audience who's here, and I think part of what makes the show interesting is that, that it is very unpredictable. It is very free-flowing, and it's been called a variety show. I've had people say, well, you don't really do a sports show, but I really like it. I beca- because I give you credit as a sports fan. I, I know that the things you really care about as a sports fan, you probably know. And so I'm not going to pull the box score out and start pouring over the box score with you. But I'm going to talk about, like, in hour one, where we talked about being at the stadium and that kind of stuff. And then who knows what's going to happen this hour, but we're going to start it by talking about, you know, what's going on in sports and catch you up, and I'll tell you what I think about stuff, and we may agree, we may disagree. doesn't mean you're a bad person if we disagree, okay? But you can think whatever you want about me. That's okay. You're just stuck with me for a while longer, a couple few years. Anyway, let's play. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. 
Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Former Trailblazer C.J. McCollum upset about people who criticize NBA players. He says too many uneducated people are criticizing NBA players. What does he mean? Here's CJ, punch it. But it's always about what you didn't do as opposed to people celebrating what you've accomplished. And I think that's the problem with this sport. At times, I think too too many people have a voice. And as a journalist, like you respect the ability to be able to talk and to speak up and to critique. But I think at times the wrong people are speaking and they're not educated on the topics they're speaking on. And it's flooding, it's flooding the realm of our social media world. I, I disagree with him, I, I, but I understand what he's saying. I, my dad, who did not play in the NBA, but he played professional baseball, told me very early on in my life, you know, I asked him what, what it was like for him to be a pro athlete, to play a, a sport with, a lot, with people buying tickets to come see him play in the minor leagues or wherever. You know, he's in AAA with the Mets in 1969 when they win the World Series. And, and my dad said, you know, the entire experience in professional sports is is people telling you what you can't do. Or in C.J. McCollum's case, telling him what he didn't do. And it's true. People tend to gravitate towards the negativity. It's ab- He's absolutely right. And are there unqualified people speaking? Sure. But there are unqualified people speaking in every setting in America. You know, go into a medical office, ask somebody about their latest doctor's appointment, and they're going to tell you, well, this doctor doesn't know what they're doing. Here's what's actually going on. You're not a doctor. What are you talking about? You know, I was at the airport today picking up Anna, and you know, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if people are, you know, people are landing. You ever been on a plane, they have a turbulent landing, and you walk by the cockpit, and you're like, that guy, what a landing. Like, like, you know, we don't know what he's dealing with. We only see the, the, the thing that's wrong. And here's what I think CJ's really talking about. When things go right in an NBA game or any sports setting, you know, a, a batter is in the batter's box and starts to swing. We expect him to hit the ball. When a boxer throws a punch, we expect him to connect with that punch. When a shooter takes a shot, we expect it to go in. And the problem is in baseball, great hitters hit 300. That's 30%. Not you know not 30% of the time they hit the ball, but 30% of the time they reach base safely. What do great shooters shoot? Like no nobody's shooting 70 or 80 or 90%. But damn it, when C.J. McCollum takes a shot, three point shot, I expect it to go in. So he's right to some extent that I see him missing the shot, or I see the thing, I, I see the the turnover, but. I think part of being a professional athlete is sitting back and understanding that the platform, the promotion of the game, the marketing, the level of interest that people have, all feeds into the very thing he's complaining about. And the $30 million contract he gets doesn't happen without all of those things also being along for the ride. I also also don't like the fact that it comes across to me as saying, well, since someone didn't play in the NBA, they can't talk yeah. about it. And right. like, I understand they have a different perspective and they can have a smart point of view with that. But at the same time, look at the best coach in the NBA, Eric Spolstra. He didn't play in the NBA. Should we not listen to him as well? Like, I, I just think you, you're, you're pick and choose where your arguments are with CJ. And he is right. There's a lot of uninformed people, uneducated people that aren't actually watching the game. But I feel like 
if you actually watch the game, you can pick out those people who don't watch the game. Like, you can understand. You can be like, this person has no idea what they're talking about. They're not watching. They're just making something, you know, some argument to try to get clicks, try to get ratings. So right. I get what CJ's saying, but at the same time, like, I watch a lot of NBA. I worked in the NBA. I feel like I have some point of view of saying I can understand what's going on in the NBA game. Like, I didn't play in the yes. NBA. Here's the other thing. I'll go one further. Like, okay, I know C.J. McCollum has a communications degree, but he's never worked at a newspaper. He's never hosted a radio show full-time. What qualifies him to, to be on air other than the fact that he's playing a sport and people are interested in what he has to say? Look, uh, I don't think anybody would come back and go, well, C.J., you're not qualified to uh, even be speaking on that on that platform. You don't have a background in it. No, it, you know, I don't think you need to be a chef to walk into a restaurant, eat a meal, and go, ooh, that wasn't very good. You don't have to be a, a chef to do that. Now, there are some some jobs, like airplane pilot, whatnot, where I think you know a lot of us don't know what's going on, and yet we still criticize what's happening. But I'll tell you one of the things that responsible journalists or responsible radio show hosts or sports columnists do, I can tell you that there were times when I have covered sports that I didn't quite understand what was happening. Fencing is a wonderful example of that. I'm at the Olympics. I'm covering fencing at the Athens Games. Mariel Zunigas from Beaverton is fencing for a gold medal. I get a call from my editor who says, hey, you got to get to fencing. This, this woman from Beaverton is going to win a gold medal. I'm on my way to fencing, and I'm on a bus with a bunch of other journalists from around the country, and I'm next to this French guy, and I said, hey, help me understand fencing. I got about 15 minutes to figure out fencing. I don't know anything about fencing. And when I get over to the venue, uh, I talk with her coach extensively. And I'm trying to understand. That's part of the job. And CJ's got to understand that. Like, you know, I have been in settings and covering college basketball or the NBA, college basketball especially, early in my career, where I'm covering Bobby Knight or I'm covering Jerry Tarkanian. And I turned to people like Pete Newell. Who are like I? You know, I think you could qualify Pete Newell Senior as an expert in basketball. I got on the phone with him prior to covering Bob Knight because I knew he was his mentor, and I said, "Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to know about what they're trying to do offensively. Tell me what you know. Help educate me. Act like I'm a dummy. Like you go to the bookstore and there's a whole library of, you know, auto mechanics for dummies, social media for dummies. Like you know, part of being in the world is yes, educating yourself, but I agree with CJ to a point, because there are some people out there that, are, that don't take the time to educate themselves and are just out there trying to uh, make noise, so to speak. So I think, I just think you're right. It, it cannot be, hey, you haven't played, therefore you don't have an opinion on it. And I've heard that from people. I've heard people go, well, you don't understand. You haven't been in the meetings. And I'm like, well, I don't think you understand journalism. But... I'm here. I'm, you know, go ahead and talk about it. John Cruck. Remember him as a ball player? John Cruck loses his mind on a broadcast as Craig Kimbrell was called for a delay of game in extra innings. Listen to this. Punch it. Two. He's not called out. It would be great if the Adrian Johnson popped his microphone on and just said, this is what's going on. And now, time oh, is called again. Crap. And now, Kimbrell is being charged with the ball. And here comes Rob Thompson. What a joke. What a circus this game's turned into. Yeah, Rob's hot. He should be. 
the hell is Kimbrell supposed to do? Kimbrell's they ready to go. They for 15 minutes, and he steps on the mound, and they call the... This is a joke. It's all right. Keep making up rules until no one knows what's going on. And now Kimbrell... There's <laughs> Kruk speaking his mind on the broadcast. I love that. Um... There are some problems with baseball's rule changes, but by and large, I'll be I'll be honest. Like I was against all a lot of this stuff, and like the idea of a pitch clock. I don't like you know messing around with the game, but some of these changes have been good. Some of these changes have been worthwhile changes that have made games faster. I've seen some things from from some pitchers that don't like the rules because they feel like they have to hurry themselves and they're going to get injured. Things of that nature. Is, is that is that a okay complaint that they have no. or is it just kind of them complaining i think they know that that's the le- the love language of people you know hey i'm gonna get hurt no, nobody wants people to get hurt you know in college athletics especially at you know student athlete welfare so i think by saying hey this isn't safe it's better than saying i don't like this or i'm not used to this i don't think anybody's gonna get hurt with this stuff but i think that i've seen some pitchers use it to their advantage you know that all of a sudden, there's, uh, you know, I, I saw one situation where there was runners on first and second and a full count on the batter. And the pitcher knew that the base runners are running on the pitch and let the pitch clock get down three, two. They know that the runners are going to go when the runners see one second on the clock. And the pitcher walked over and picked the guy off on second base instead of delivering the ball because the runners were like, I have to run here. I'm supposed to be running on a 3-2 pitch, and the pitch the clock is down to one second. I'm running, and the, all the pitcher did was walk over and pick him off at second base. I thought it was brilliant. They're, you know, they're always loot. Chip Kelly, can you imagine Chip Kelly with this pitch count thing? Like, you know, he'd have the pitcher walking around the mound waiting for the clock to tick down to one second and then jumping up and firing the pitch in there. It's fascinating. Andy Reid. Talking about the new fair catch kickoff rule in the NFL. Chiefs coach, not at all happy. Punch it. My, my thing is, where does it stop, right? So you start taking pieces and, um, you know, we'll see how this goes. But you don't want to take too many pieces away or you be playing flag football. I'm not quite sure it's flag football, but I get it. Look, they're just trying to make the game safer, again, on the safety issue. I'm not... You know, I'm, they kind of modified the fair catch kickoff rule. They didn't go all the way with, like, you know. But I just think if you're Andy Reid and, they, you know, you you have Patrick Mahomes as your, as your uh, quarterback, you want some of the rules. Flag football wouldn't be all that bad for Patrick Mahomes. Uh, you want some of those rules in place. But right now, For the 2023 season, the ball will be put in play at the receiving team's 25-yard line if there's a fair catch on a kickoff. So if uh, you fair catch it, you go to the 25. This is a player safety thing. Uh, I I don't think it's going to have that big of an impact on the game. Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC. He says that geography is very important. We, I've talked to Sankey about this. Um, L.A. schools going to the Big Ten. Sankey is pointing out that the longest travel in the SEC is shorter than the shortest travel for any of the L.A. schools in the Big Ten. Think about that. 
geography wins. Punch it. There is something still for us from a geographic standpoint. Um, I've had kind of branding specialists say you could do what Kentucky Fried Chicken did and go just KFC. <laughs> we could lose the Southeastern Conference moniker and just become the SEC. Uh, but that's not really who we are. And when we expanded, I just did the math on this over the weekend. We added 95 miles basically to our, our travel, our longest trip. And our longest trip is shorter than the shortest trip that the LA schools will have in the Big Ten. An interesting reality of our expansion is we restore rivalries. The other expansions haven't done that. So obviously Texas A&M and Texas uh, are kind of leading there. You retain Oklahoma and Texas. Um, Arkansas and Texas goes back decades. Just legendary stories about competition between those two universities. Uh, Oklahoma and Missouri were a quarter of the Big Eight back in the day. It will now be part of the Southeastern Conference. And then there's you know, geographical alignments that will provide rivalries sooner rather than later. In my the, the geography thing is interesting, you know, because we don't really think about it you know, we think about the travel, but there is something to geography. David Shaw said it on this show last July, the former Stanford coach. He said he thought, you know, geography and the force of uh, geography would uh, eventually win over. He expects that the L.A. schools will be back. Um, but Greg Sankey pointing out that just from their standpoint, geography is an important part of the equation. It really is. And I think it should matter. Andrew Marshawn talking about ESPN and the Pac-12. Is ESPN going to do a deal with the Pac-12, or is ESPN out of the picture? Here's Marshawn of the New York Post. Punch it. ESPN has had no substantive talks with the Pac-12 in a while. Uh, the only way I see ESPN doing a deal is if the Pac-12 does something very creative. And when you say the word creative, and you're talking about these big deals that are supposed to be for billions of dollars, at least millions of dollars, that means less expensive, which does not solve the Pac-12's problem. You know, they need to get the money and they need to have the exposure. I do not believe they are going to get that at ESPN. Uh, you know, do things change over time? That's always possible. I never would totally close the door, but I don't foresee that. Andrew Marshawn reporting that New York Post. There's been some speculation that the Pac-12 may go all in with a streaming service. I don't know if ESPN hasn't had substantial talks. I don't know what substantial talks means, but I am told that the Pac-12 continues to talk to ESPN. Substantial talks? I don't know. I do know that Marshawn is connected with ESPN. And I keep thinking about this and some of the stuff that we see leaked out like this, and I keep wondering how much of this is ESPN negotiating how much of this is maybe the Pac-12 has pivoted to Amazon or Apple or streaming service now that we know that ESPN is going to uh, go totally streaming here in the next three to five years. That said, I do think the Pac-12 needs a presence on ESPN. A presence. It doesn't have to be a substantial presence, but you need a presence. Why? Because you need to be able to have Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler and Reese Davis and the propaganda machine that is ESPN perpetuating the idea that your programs matter nationally. It, you need them on the, the shoulder programming that is the college football playoff selection shows and the, you know, the reveal every week. You, you need that constant dialogue. It helps your conference. So you don't have to be your tier one partner. 
But, but you need to be on ESPN. You have to be. Leave it here. Never too early to talk college football. Never too early to talk about what's going on with the NCAA. Daniel Libet uh, does a fantastic job as a reporter for Sportico. This is a guy who will sue for public records. Uh, journalist living in the Chicago area has looked at the latest tax return from the NCAA, and he's joining us now. Daniel, thank you for making time. Thank you for the introduction. That's a great way to be introduced. Appreciate it. I love that. You sound so close. <laughs> You're joining us via Zoom, which is fantastic. But uh, give us an idea. Your background, what got you into journalism and, and the interest in public records and in, uh, investigative reporting? You know, I spent the first uh, more than half of my career so far covering politics um, for a number of different outlets. And then not long after the 2016 uh, presidential race, which we will all remember, um, I, I made a dovetail into covering college sports and started writing about uh, a very specific blog dedicated to the University of New Mexico, where I investigated them for a couple of years and then kind of expanded and looked nationally at college sports and um, have been at uh, Sportico writing enterprise and investigative stories primarily on college athletics for the last two and a half years or so. And it's been my, been my arc. The NCAA is an interesting entity. You now have uh, a former lawmaker, Charlie Baker, who's been a governor, who's in charge of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, out of the picture. Um, you know, you, you looked at the filings. Uh, you know, what period of time do does this latest tax filing cover, and what are you looking for? Or are you just kind of at first saying, hey, this is out, I'll check it out? Well, I think the context, you know, sort of it wouldn't be hard for your listeners to anticipate, which is, you know, this is a organization that is in distress, if not in ultimate decline. You know, we've been in any number of ways witnessing if it's the antitrust cases against the NCAA, if it was the advent of NIL, um, despite the NCAA's resistance um, and a whole host of other things, other kind of social and economic factors um, that are really putting this once all-powerful organization on its heels. Uh, so, you know, here's the annual opportunity to look at uh, their their financial disclosures. So this one covers the tax year of 2021. It's their fiscal year of 2022. So it was the 12-month period that ended uh, last summer, um, which you know, here's now a couple of years out from the start of COVID and when college sports was able to return. This is uh, the last full year of Mark Emmert being president. He uh, stepped down two months ago. So we'll see next tax season um, what he ultimately cashed out with or the mo most of what he ultimately cashed out with. Um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of litigation. We see the, the NCAA's legal fees, legal expenditures, their lobbying, um, their revenues. You know, this is an organization that uh, still controls over a billion dollars of revenue, as was borne out in their most recent filing. A billion dollars of revenue that's generated primarily through uh, the men's and women's basketball tournament, um, most of which is passed along to the schools, but a, a, a nice chunk that goes to at least a handful of top NCAA officials, including the president, Mark Emmer. Uh, the story I wrote off of 
the recent filing uh, that was released today actually focuses on another former NCAA executive, a guy named Donald Remy, who last served as the chief operating officer and before that, for about a decade, was the top in-house lawyer for the NCAA, kind of presided over the NCAA's legal strategy during a decade-long period where it was just losing in court left and right, um, and, and then left the NCAA mid-2021 to become a deputy secretary uh, in the Department of Veteran Affairs in the Biden administration, a job that he just recently stepped down from a month and a half ago. Um, he, uh, he was actually the highest paid person at the NCAA for this particular 12-month period, uh, in part due to a $2.5 million severance payment he was given on the way out the door. Uh, so he made technically more in, uh, in the fiscal year 2022 than Mark Emmert. I think uh, he made about $3.5 million. Uh, Emmert made a, a few hundred thousand dollars less than that, but still uh, did quite well. You know, as you talk about this, we always think of the NCAA, and you know what I see, Daniel? I see a logo. I see their logo, and then maybe I see Mark Emmert's face. But what are we talking about? Yeah. How many people work for the NCAA, and you know, how wide-ranging is this organization? Yeah, well, that's always the question is, you know, yeah, the, the NCAA is often misconstrued. The NCAA is its member institutions. You know, the NCAA is all of, of in terms of its governance and its power, are all of the schools that have agreed to play by this uh, set of rules and that have agreed to delegate the governance to this uh, not-for-profit organization in the Indianapolis. Um, so that's one way. That's the macro way to look at it. The NCAA is everybody. And, and obviously, Mark Emmert's been an interesting figure. He's been a sort of popular pinata uh, on the way out the door, everybody. Uh, seem to have negative feelings, or most everybody seemed to have negative feelings about Mark Emmert, if it was athlete representatives or schools or people in Washington, members of Congress. Um, but he was just one person effectively carrying out the the uh, the mission that was uh, decided upon by the Board of Governors and by the schools that the Board of Governors represents. Um, so you can think of it as just the president. You can think of it in the largest sense, as all the schools that participate. And then as an organization, it's an organization of 600 or, or, or now a few uh, less than 600 people who work in, in Indianapolis. Interestingly enough, um, one of those people who is not working in Indianapolis is the new NCAA president you just mentioned, Charlie Baker, who um, upon leaving the governor's mansion in Massachusetts um, and taking over from Emmert, the uh, job as NCAA president uh, made it made the decision not to actually move out to Indy, um, but to stay in Massachusetts uh, in, in large part because his real work is focused on lobbying Congress for NCAA friendly federal legislation. Now, we're watching lawsuits all over the country, NIL, um, athletes, uh, you know, making the moves that will. I guess, are the precursors to them organizing and uh, potentially collective bargaining. And it feels to me like the entities themselves, Daniel, are scared that, you know, the, the schools themselves are going, hey, this is going to really hurt uh, the bottom line and hurt the model. When I say that, you know, you're looking at a tax filing that shows 
uh, that, you know, this is, you've got, you know, people making, you know, minting millionaires, basically, as, you know, the revenues that rising, and you've got people making several million dollars in these jobs, you have the revenue up, uh, you know, uh, $1.2 billion. And so when I say that, you know, I'm sure those who are working on behalf of college athletes are going, they're rubbing their hands together going, there's $1.2 billion out there. Yeah, well, that was certainly the reaction I saw on social media to the story I posted and, and that we've seen elsewhere when uh, the the financials come out from either the conferences or the NCAA. I should note the $1.2 billion doesn't even touch really college football at all. So there's billions more on an annual basis that's generated uh, through college athletics. But yeah, to your point, um, there is no no question an existential threat to the to the uh, system as we've come to know it. Um, I think the safe money is on something profoundly changing. You know, the end of the NCAA and college governance as we know it at some time not into the too distant future. Um, the lawsuits, uh, as we've seen. You know, the, the the direction is only going one way, beginning with the Alston case. That was a 9-0 Supreme Court decision in favor of athletes um, against the wishes of the NCAA. Uh, there's a number of other uh, federal cases that are going on that strike at the heart of athlete compensation and athlete employment rights. Um, obviously, we're going on on the West Coast with USC. There's the NLRB case. Um, uh, challenging the employment status through an administrative process of college athletes. Uh, it's not looking good for those who want to uh, sort of continue amateurism as we've come to know it, um, really in any way, shape, or form. And it doesn't, there's nothing really out there that seems to be slowing the ball. The, the Hail Mary is the idea that Congress is going to pass some sort of legislation that might address NIL, but effectively just stop uh, the way that the pendulum is swinging on all else, um, you know, having covered Congress, but just being a an American adult <laughs> witnessing <laughs> Congress in that capacity, I think, I think it seems far-fetched that Congress um, is going to be able to come together for some sort of really substantial college sports reform. While there's many hearings that are held each year, Congress didn't even make a move uh, right up to uh, NIL coming into effect when uh, that was being discussed as as potentially an end to college sports. Uh, a bill couldn't even get passed out of committee uh, ahead of that. So I, I think I would be betting against uh, Congress doing anything significant. Um, I'm sure there will be bills proposed. Um, there will certainly be a lot of talk on the Hill, and that has not been um, without some purpose. But I, I can't imagine federal legislation basically putting a halt to what's going on in the courts and really just what's going on in the popular opinion as it relates to college sports. Daniel Libet is with us, Sportico. Uh, you know, I look at, we had Sonny Vaccaro on the show. He talked about the O'Bannon case, um, you know, the Supreme yeah. Court. It's the Supreme Court. I mean, it was, you know, if it's a football game, you know, it's, it's like, you know, that was 42 to nothing. The Supreme Court just said, hey, don't come back here. How much does that case, the O'Bannon case, loom in the background of everything that you think you see happening now and into the future? Well, it's sort of what it's it's what kicked everything off in, in a sense. And it, and it did so at a time when it was really an unpopular opinion 
the idea that athletes, not only that they shouldn't just get directly compensated for their play, but that they should have an opportunity to earn anything while they were athletes based on their athletic uh, talent. Um, so, you know, it, it was a long time coming um, from when the O'Bannon case got filed uh, to, you know, the developments of the last couple of years. And But we definitely seem like we've hit um, the top of the slope and, and the momentum now is coming fast. Projections that people were making about change that could happen in five or ten years maybe have already happened when you even just look at NIL. You look at where we went from the day that NIL went into effect to collectives coming on board to collectives becoming popularized. Um, those were, you know, when I was talking with people in the industry who, who are generally very smart and, and, uh, and have good intuitions, these, this was the kind of development that people thought was years away, five years away, and it happened within a year of NIL going into effect. So if that's, you know, if, if history, recent history is our guide, then I think the expectation is, is that change continues, you know, radical change continues to happen fast. And the one thing about, you know, going back to the NCAA, the one thing that the NCAA has never been able to do in the modern era is get ahead of a revolution. And it hasn't had to for a while. It hasn't had to for decades. Um, but it is not, it is not kind of conditioned to think, okay, this is eventually going to come around the corner. Why don't we just take the leap and try to you know, sort of beat beat uh, uh, change to uh, to the punch um, and maybe do something that we wouldn't want to necessarily do in the short term because that will give us an opportunity to kind of control the future going forward. That The NCAA has never done that. I mean, NIL is a perfect test case. The NCAA knew this was coming down the pike and just could not get itself to do any kind of significant reform. There was reforms beforehand. It was a lot of foot dragging. Um, and then ultimately it just got dragged into NIL um, and, and never really had an opportunity to have a say. It was, it was effectively at the, at the point of the bayonet of all the state-based legislation, first in California and then across the country. So, you know, this is an, this is an old dinosaur of an organization um, that has a lot, you know, as, as, as it's, current president is trying to sort of lobby Congress to, to halt things effectively, to halt, halt this sort of athlete right change that's going on. Um, it, it really is in an identity crisis. You know, why is it in Indianapolis? Does that serve the purpose? Does it need 600 employees? Does it need 30 employees? Does it need 1200 employees? What is its enforcement division supposed to do, especially if uh, state legislatures and courts are, are, are potentially going to rip away um, the, the enforcement need on some of these questions about athlete compensation and so forth. So um, it's an interesting time. And, and, you know, so that, that is how I view this document. It is, it yeah. is just uh, kind of ticking off uh, the, the, uh, the future of, of the NCAA and looking at, you know, still a very significant organization, but one whose time may have ultimately come. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Supreme Court basically has said, don't come back here, figure this out. You come back here, it won't end well for you. Uh, Daniel Levitt with us. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise. I think it's a fantastic read. If you're interested in finding out more about the document, uh, Daniel's work, uh, you can find it on Sportico. You can also find him at Daniel Libet on Twitter. Daniel, thank you for joining us. appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
You bet. Uh, interesting stuff. Now, keep in mind, um, you know, when you look at the NCAA as an entity, it it you know we see it going on in the background of college athletics, but it 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 has very little oversight anymore. Certainly not in the college postseason. It's the college football playoff. The CFP controls the postseason. The bowl season is the bowl season. Um, even EA college football for people who played EA college football back in the day, the, it's coming back, and there will be a five million dollar uh, player pool that will be split evenly among players who opt in. Um, so you're going to see, I think, players who are featured in video games get paid, and I do think you're going to have some star players who try to negotiate outside of that pool and say, hey, if you want me in on it, Caleb Williams, hey, you want me being part of this game, it, you know, I, I don't get an even share. I need more. Um, it's not Wild West. It's, it's capitalism at its best. I know the stuff is dry. And I, and I hesitate a little bit, like, diving into this because I'm not sure how much you find it interesting. But I'm into it. Leave it here. Shannon Sharp uh, speaking out on the John Morant front. John Morant uh, had a welfare check, his sheriff's deputies in uh, his hometown, checking on him after he posted on social media that uh, basically goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And um, turns out he's saying he was just saying goodbye to the to social media. But Shannon Sharp went off on this uh, today, and he said he would love to have uh, he would love to have a conversation with Ja. I think Ja needs to take this time for himself. Think about what it is that he wants his NBA career to be and how he wants to be remembered. Yeah. Because right now history is not looking at him favorable. No. It's looking like he wants to do other things other than play basketball. I don't think the NBA is going to allow you to be a part-time thug and a part-time NBA player. You get to choose one or the other. Hopefully he chooses the latter and he becomes a full-time basketball player. But I think John, I, I do think John needs some, some, uh, some guidance, some counseling. I would love to sit down and just have a conversation I, with him. I got it. And say, John, what, you, what, what do you yeah. want, bro? Do you understand how much uh, God has given you? And my grandmother used to have a saying all the time. She said, boy, don't be ungrateful to God. And you, what she means by that, Skip, sometimes we get so much and we forget just the simple blessing of waking up. Mm. John, you've been blessed tenfold. Don't squander this. There you go. Shannon Sharp spitting some truth there. Uh, Stephen, you, you've worked in the NBA world with the Blazers organization. I think sometimes we forget that the players in the league come into the league very young. I think socially they're underdeveloped because they have been coddled and passed along as young people because they have talent in basketball. It used to be people used to say, oh, look at this football player. He can't even read, and they passed him on from fourth grade to fifth grade. I don't think it's that anymore, but I think there is a underdeveloped social circle that is not uncommon to some of the young star players, particularly in basketball, because – they have just been treated differently to you know and enabled in a way and and you don't attract people who are going to give it to you real like Shannon Sharp's trying to like hey I want to get real with you about what you need you, you know you don't attract that you instead attract people who tell you what you want to hear all the time definitely and i think in the nba it's it's always so different i think than other sports because we see their faces Right, like in the NFL, they wear helmets. You can't necessarily see their faces. Baseball, they wear hats. Hockey, they wear helmets. 
Like the NBA, we see your face the whole time. And so like, it's undeniable to see, you know, you want to put your face out there and be recognized. So I think for jaw, like, and for a lot of young people, it's just, they want to be out there. They want to be recognized. They want to be getting likes. And that, and I feel like him as a young kid, like that's what he's doing. And there's got to be someone to hold him accountable. And there just hasn't been because that's just kind of the culture of basketball. Like you talked about AAU scene. It, it's a lot of yes, yes, yes. You know, you're the best. You're going to be a D1 athlete. You're going to be an NBA guy. Let, just follow me and it's going to be perfect. But then it doesn't work out. And then there's no one to blame except for yourself because you just believe the wrong people. And I think Ja right now ha- just has to reevaluate who he's looking at in his life to, you know, Someone needs to call him out, and so and I don't know if someone's going to be able to do that because, like, if I'm one of Jaws' boys, like he's probably you know helped me out with his with money and with a life. Yep. Like I don't know that I want to necessarily you know, hurt that relationship. So it's going to be hard for Jaw, I think, to break this cycle that he's in right now, and it's just unfortunate because, like, you know, my kid is eight years old. He loves John Morant, like watching him play basketball. He thinks he's awesome because he could dunk, he can do all these cool things on the court. But man, you're 23 years old and you've already been. You know, in trouble like this, you're suspended from all team activities. You're coming into a new five-year deal. It, he's got to figure it out, man, because it's just for him. Like, for him, he's got to figure it out for his life, not just for his basketball career. Yeah, and, you know, look, I've, we've seen this before. I, 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 You've seen people who have good influences around them and bad influences around them. We all know people in our own circles who have good influences and bad influences. Also, you know, some people are followers and some people are leaders. And I, you know, I, I think the worst combination is the combination of being a follower and also having bad people in your circle. I mean, it's logically that makes sense to me. And I think just as, as a classic example of that, I don't think Zach Randolph, when he came into the league, necessarily had good influences around him. And for people who know Zebo's story, the Blazers draft him in the first round. He, you know, he's a kid that, uh, you know, whose brother went to prison, Roger uh, Randolph, Zebo's brother, was in prison when he was drafted. The Blazers did a background check on Zach Randolph. I obtained the background check. I saw that they talked to his elementary school teachers. They talked to his high school teachers. And the, the common thread was, really nice kid, has a good heart, bit of a follower, tends to attract bad people. Um, and, but if, you know, if you can get that kid into the NBA in a way where you get some good influences and, uh, you know, some strong leadership around him in the locker room, he, a kid like that will flourish because he'll follow the right people and gravitate towards the right people. But if you introduce a player into a environment that has no culture and doesn't have strong leadership in the locker room and, uh, look out. And I got I have a sneaking suspicion that that's in play here with John Morant, in addition to whatever's going on in his personal life. Uh, the Five at Five starring Stephen is coming up. Leave it right here. We are in the happy hour. This show is flying along. Anna came back from Taiwan. She made it home. I had a lot of listeners, and I appreciate all of you who are uh, giving me moral support. <laughs> She's gone for a week, which meant I was home alone, like Macaulay Culkin. Except no burglars and bad guys. Just uh, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And it was good. It was connective in a way. And uh, for me, because I don't get a lot of that experience in that I'm working quite a bit. And I see the kids usually in the morning before they go to school. I will see them sometimes uh, right when they get out of school. 
and then I see them at like dinner time and bedtime and the weekends are much more connected but to have them more present in my ecosystem or my orbit or whatever it is was kind of cool and then but Anna said she said that it it felt like it was a long time she said you know it felt like it was forever like it was a month I felt like it was like 15 minutes and I don't mean that in a bad way I felt like I was so busy in the last week and I had so many people reach out to me and be like hey can you do this? Can you, you know, could you have time for a phone call? And I was like, I don't have any time right now. I don't. And part of it is, like, for those of you out there who balance having kids and working jobs, and a lot of you do, and Stephen, we've talked about that, You, because your wife leaves because she teaches, she goes to school, and she's coaching track. You're watching the kids and then working and then watching the kids, and it's what you do as parents. And my parents did that. But for me, you know, the kids lean on mom. They need their mommy, and especially the, you know, the six-year-old in particular. Now seven, I should say. I don't have a six-year-old anymore. Uh, but for me, it was just a little different to be in that role. And uh, there were some hiccups, I'm not going to lie. There was a trip to uh, the store, and I was loading stuff up in the back, and the kids, uh, this is on Saturday. Tell me, tell me if I reacted correctly to this. Uh, I, I think I made a mistake. And so... We're at the store, and the kids asked me, can I get a candy bar? Okay? Tell me at what point, when you see my mistake, I want you to go, there's your mistake. It could be right now. They asked me, can we get a candy bar? I said, yes. You you guys were really good in the store. You know, pick something out. Except it was about 11 a.m., I want to say, on Saturday. I think it was Saturday. might have been Sunday. I don't know. And... And uh, I said, okay, but don't eat it until after we have lunch. There's a problem. (laughs) They had possession of, the seven-year-old had a possession of a king-size Three Musketeers bar, which really is two Three Musketeers bars. And she says, oh, I accidentally opened it. Okay? (laughs) That's what she said as we were... Walking to the car. Now, I had a bunch of stuff I had to load into the back of the car. I put the kids in the car because, you know, you're in a parking lot. You're always going, don't get hit. Don't get hit. Not a good place to get run over if there is a good place to get run over. So I put the two kids into the car, and I'm. it's like that, that puzzle where they say you have a bowl of grain, you have a chicken, and you have a fox. You need to get all three things to one side of the river, but you can't leave the chicken and the fox alone. You can't leave the bowl of grain and the chicken alone together. So how do you get all three things over? And, oh, by the way, you can only carry one thing at a time. And so what order do you do them in? I felt like I was playing that game, except it was with a candy bar and the groceries and the cart. And so I'm loading stuff into the back of the car, and I'm believing that they're going to take my instruction and not eat that candy bar until after lunch. And um, by the time I loaded the groceries and put the cart away, I came back and I looked in the rearview mirror and the seven-year-old's face had chocolate all over it. I was not happy in that moment. I was, uh, I was uh, disappointed in that moment. And then I said, you know, we're still, I'm going to go home and I'm going to make you a sandwich, damn it, and you're going to eat it. And she said, I'm not hungry, Dad. <laughs> the worst. Isn't that terrible? 
And then here's the other thing. Mom gets home today. What do you think they do? They start tattling. Dad let us have a lot of screen time. Dad let me get a candy bar. <laughs> Dad said we didn't have to have milk with breakfast. I mean, do you, do you get tattled on? Yeah, I do. And I so I get it because my brother, he he just had a baby. Congratulations to him, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but awesome. you know, I told him some advice. I said, just just if you're watching the kid, just keep him alive. Like that's the goal. Set it low. If they're alive, that's all you can do, and then you give them back to mom. And then mom will figure it out at that point. Because I you know, I'm gonna go through this, John. State track meet starts this weekend. Wife is gonna be gone Thursday mm. through Saturday. So it's gonna be old Steven in charge of the kids for a couple days here. So it goes from you, now it's uh pass the baton to me. I'll be watching kids. So hopefully uh, they stay alive, and uh, I'm sure my kids will do something like this to me and then tattle on me. <laughs> I love it. Do you have different rules? Do you guys have uh, consistent rules, like, as a family? Or, like, you know, you, you, you know, when you talk about how you guys do things or family rules, is there consistency? Because I think that's – I feel like that's really important, and yet I find that I'm much more easygoing than yeah, Anna. My wife is very organized, so she likes to have things buckled down. Um, so the kids know, like, if I'm watching them, they can probably get a little more out of me. You know, they can stay up a little bit later. They can, uh, you know, maybe get a snack, you know, a candy bar, like you said, because, you know, I'll get one too then. Like, at the same time, like, hey, you guys want it? Yeah, let me get one too. So yeah. I think they do know, like, but for the most part, I try to keep, like, the pillars, the pillar rules the same, but they know they can uh, sneak a little out of me. They can sneak. Uh, they're rascals, you know, and uh, and luckily Anna knows them, so she knows that they're embellishing some of it. Like you know, the seven year old gets a gets you know she's the straw that stirs the drink in the family. She understands that she's getting me busted in this case by saying to mom, "I you know we know we had a candy bar. We didn't even have to have lunch, mom. Guess what I had for lunch? I had a double Three Musketeers bar." And they think it's funny. That's the that's the yeah. part. In the meantime, I'm, Anna's looking at me like, are, "Are you an idiot?" Like, what I, but you were out of the country, so you have, you know, there's no you, nothing you could do about it. Um, we're going to do the five at five here. Stephen is going to uh, be the star of the show. Anna will be back tomorrow doing the five at five. Um, she's having a uh, a uh, king size three musketeers bar as we speak. Let's do this. The five at five. Number one story as Stephen sees it. John Morant, we just talked about this. He uh, had an Instagram story that he posted in it. He said, uh, love you to his mom, dad, and his baby girl, and then said bye to all of them. He then deleted the post. Police in Tennessee, they would conduct a welfare check of Morant, said, who said he was just taking a break from social media. Morant, of course, he is suspended from all team activities after that second gun video emerged. Morant's five-year, $194 million max contract set to begin this next season, so it hasn't even started yet. Now, it could have escalated to a Supermax had he made an all-NBA team, but because that suspension he had mm. didn't really help, that cost him $39 million in future earnings. He has endorsements with Nike and Powerade. Nike has pulled his shoes off the website. Powerade is not showing his ad anymore. I, just, I want to take this angle with it, John. Do the Grizzlies – are the Grizzlies part, partially to blame for this? Because the team they have, a young team, they don't have any veteran leaderships. Do you put any blame on the Memphis Grizzlies organization – by giving him the key to the franchise and not having a veteran leader to help him out. Yes, and I think it's part of what I, you know, it's part of what I'm talking about when I was sort of looking back at Blazers history. Remember when Zach Randolph came into the Blazers organization? There, there, there was not great veteran leadership. It was in this vacuum that happened after the departure of 
Rasheed Wallace and uh, Damon Stoudemire and Dale Davis and guys that had been in the organization. And, you know, Dale Davis was still there, but he was kind of on his way out. And so, you know, there was some, there was just some, uh, you know, Tom Fullery and Ballyhoo that was going on in the locker room. And that's a shout out to one of my friends who uses that phrase all the time. But it's, um, it, I think the same thing is happening kind of with the Memphis Grizzlies. Like the culture in the locker room to a certain extent can really help young, talented, suddenly wealthy people understand how to handle being young, talented, and suddenly wealthy. But with John Morant, there may be more to this. I didn't like the story today where, you know, there's an Instagram post or two or three, and suddenly there's a welfare check. Alarms and bells were going off, and I'm going, wait a minute. Is he in distress? Is there a mental health issue here? Like, I really hope he's got some people in his circle, his agent, his his family, close friends who care about him and would care about him whether or not he's a star player who's got wealth. I hope those people care enough about him to continue to do welfare checks and get him in a position to succeed because he's about to blow this. He's made and, a lot of money, yeah. but he's already cost himself some money as well. So I think yeah. once that starts happening even more, I think maybe hopefully he uh, gets his head on straight. Yeah, and I just I hope that there, there isn't a mental wellness health issue going on, and this is just he's immature and he's got some bad people around him because that's that's a, an easy fix if he wakes up. But what's not an easy fix, and people know this, like we all have dealt with people who who have mental or wellness issues. And it's really hard to get somebody who's in that position to see themselves accurately. And, you know, I, I hope that he gets right. That's the best way I can put it. But I think there's a little bit of a cry for help going on in the background of this thing. I just suspect that there's something else going on with John Morant. All right, number two story as you see it, Steve. I had a Tuscaloosa. The judge denied bail today for former Alabama basketball player Darius Miles, who is facing a capital murder charge related to a fatal shooting no. near campus. Miles, he has pleaded not guilty back in January. Now, it was Michael Lynn Davis and Miles that were both charged with a capital murder. Davis is accused of firing the gun that killed the young woman. But according to court documents filed in Tuscaloosa, investigators wrote that uh, Miles admitted to providing the handgun immediately before the shooting. And it is thought that Brandon Miller, potential top three draft pick in the NBA draft, could be Portland Trailblazer. He was the one that actually delivered the gun to Miles in his car. Uh, you know, we had the Alabama strength and conditioning coordinator, Henry Barrera, for the basketball team on. He says there's nothing to worry about uh, character-wise with Brandon Miller. He's not charged with anything, according to all the uh, security and the, the the officers. He's been a cooperating witness. What, what do you make of this story, John? Yeah, it's uh, problematic. I put some of this on Alabama. I think Alabama's had a really rough run. Greg Byrne, the athletic director at Alabama, we've had him on the show before. I think they're Nate Oates, the basketball coach, and, uh, you know, you, you don't want this stuff around your program. And it reminds me a little bit, you know, Fresno State had an incident in the wake of Jerry Tarkanian when Ray Lopes came in and uh, took over the program. I think it was his first or second year. It was a Tarkanian recruit. And I remember having this conversation with Tark about, you know, he brought guys to campus that weren't safe, okay? Baylor football brought guys to campus that endangered other students on campus. Um, you know, this wasn't a student on campus situation at Alabama, but I think you have a responsibility as 
a university and as a basketball program or a football program or any kind of coaching scenario, I think you have a responsibility to the larger, uh, to society, to the student body, to other parents who are non-basketball related parents. You, I think you have a responsibility to make sure that you're not bringing bad people into your community. And Tark and I talked about that. Like, you know, he was he was adamant, like, these players deserve a second chance. And I said, yeah, to an extent. But when you've got a guy running around your campus with a samurai sword, or in the case of Ray Lopes at Fresno State, it was, it was a gun, it was a uh, drug deal gone bad, and a student got shot and killed, got murdered by a basketball player. And I said, Tark, Tark brought that guy to campus in the first place. Well, I can't control what they do when they get there. Yeah, you kind of can. You kind of can control who you bring into the ecosystem. And I think Alabama had some obvious lack of institutional control going on within the parameters of the basketball program for sure. And it's embarrassing for Alabama. It's troubling. It's problematic. I don't like this stuff. I don't. What do you make of it? Yeah, it's tough because you know, he, he's been told that he's been a cooperating witness uh, technically, legally, like he didn't do anything wrong. No. Yeah. But at the same time, like then he didn't recognize the room. You know, the next game he comes out, they do the pat down uh, during the introductions. He wasn't suspended. I think Alabama really botched this. NATO did a terrible job of, you know, kind of doing PR on this. It was a terrible look by them. I don't think it hurts his draft stock. No. I, I still think he's going to go either second or third. Um, and I've gone back and forth on this. Like if the Blazers were to draft him, would I be happy? Or would I be upset? I, I still don't know yet. I, I really don't know, John, how I would feel. I, I guess I'd have to figure it out in the moment. But I think I'm leaning towards I'd be okay with it at this point, just with more and more stuff that's come out. But, man, it's, it's tough, man. I think, look, when it comes to when it comes to Brandon Miller, I think the biggest problem I have with the whole scenario isn't necessarily, like, you know, he's a cooperating witness. That's great. But I expect people to be cooperating witnesses. And I'm told by my, you know, district attorney friends that not everybody is, that this would be viewed as a positive thing. Okay, that's cool. No subpoena necessary. This guy's cooperating. But is he cooperating because he knows that, you know, some agent or attorney has told him, hey, if you cooperate, it's going to make you look good on draft day or whatnot. So it's, it's you know, when we have the strength and conditioning coach on the show, that person's opinion matters more to me than, you know, hey, he's a cooperating witness or whatnot. Like, what's this kid like to be around? Are you comfortable with this person? Is it, you know, is this a person of integrity? Is this somebody you'd have over your house? Because that's what you are. We're bringing a player into a community. And I, but, you know, there are some people that look at what happened. Brandon Miller got asked to bring a gun to a scene of an eventual crime in the middle of the night. And he said, I'll be right there. Okay, I have questions about that. I have questions. It doesn't mean he committed a crime. It it just, it's, there's a judgment issue there. And it gives me a little bit of pause. And I, I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, but I lean towards do your homework. Talk, you know, I saw that, you know, I mentioned that report that the Blazers did on Zebo. It was as thick as a phone book. I mean, they talked to everybody. They knew there were problems. They knew it was a calculated risk. It always is. And they decided, okay, we're going to go with it. And, you know, it mostly worked out. So do your homework. Is that an answer? I don't know. Great one. Number three.
Uh, Tiger Woods, he has announced that he will not be a part of the U.S. Open. We were all hoping there was expected that he would try to play in this event, but he still seems to be working to get back from the latest surgery he had in April. The procedure to help him the post-traumatic arthritis in his right ankle, which stems from that car crash back in February 2021. Last time we saw Woods was at the Masters in the, this past April, which he was forced to, to withdraw in the final uh, during the final round. Yeah, he didn't look good, right? Like I, I there was, you know, he didn't look good and he 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 didn't look healthy, and he looked like he was in pain. And while that is a relatable thing, like you know, all my friends that play golf or you you're you're a weekend warrior, we all know what it feels like to not be at your best. It's that struggle against your limitations. But man, we're not used to seeing an athlete of that caliber be in that situation. I mean, and, we never we're never going to see him win another major, right? Like, are we even going to see him participate in another major? I think he will participate. He's got he's and I'm not even going to say he's not going to win one, Stephen. Okay. I I'm just going to say he it doesn't look good for him right now. It's like, hard it's hard to doubt that guy. He, he's I know. If anyone could do it it would be him, you know, but not now in a year, two years, maybe he takes time off. I don't know. Um, it'll be, it'll go down as, you know, it's like, he looked like Achilles. Like, you know, I, I remember the movie, the Troy with Brad Pitt and Achilles comes running out and, you know, he, he just looks infallible. And then you find out, yeah, he's got a weak spot. Tiger Woods had an Achilles. We like to talk about what ifs. I mean, what if he stays healthy? What if he stays on track? I mean, how many, ma- how many majors does this guy have? We, it was assumed he was going to break the record and then he, he was, he yeah. broke down. Number, what are we on? Four. 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 The uh, USPTO. They've denied the trademark application for the NFL's Washington Commanders. What? The Commanders trademark was refused because of an existing registration for the Commanders Classic, which is the name of the football game between Air Force and Army. And the second reason it, the trademark was refused was due to pending applications for the Washington Space Commanders and Washington Wolf <laughs> Commanders, which filings were made by a uh, D.C. area man named Martin McCauley, who filed the trademarks trying to guess what the new name would be. Now, the team does have some uh, options here. They can file a response arguing that an NFL team is unlikely to be confused with a single college game, which seems likely that that might pass and they could go with that. And then they would have to buy out the rights or sign a coexistence agreement with McCauley for the name Commanders. McCauley has told the press he intends to turn over any trademarks the team may need without any cost. But, of course, that's just what he says. Who knows what he's going to do? Are the Commanders going to get a new name, John, or are they going to try to buy this one out? This is, uh, they've got to buy it out, don't they? It's already embarrassing They got enough. a new owner, new owner though. Maybe go yeah. with a brand new name again. Go football team commanders and then new one. I just love when when they had to change originally from Redskins that they they went to Washington football team and it was like, that was all you got, you know? Um, I don't like, I don't love commanders. I, I don't love it. I like football team better than commanders, I'll be honest. Go back to Washington football team? Yeah. Okay. I like the sound I'll, of that. I'll buy it. Go like the hogs. The hogs. Yeah, that, the hogs wasn't would that work. the thing back in the day? Yeah, with John Riggins in the days and the offensive linemen. They Mark were the Griffin. hogs. Um, finally, number five in the five at five. Number five, Michigan State. Big Ten, they're going to wrap up their regular season against Penn State at Ford Field on a Friday. That game moved up from a Saturday to a Friday, which would be November 24th, as the Big Ten's new primetime package with NBC the Big Ten approached Michigan State about moving the game, which was originally set for that Saturday, the 25th, at Spartan Stadium, but has been moved up a day 
to a primetime spot on Black Friday at Ford Field. Michigan State, they're going to refund tickets and parking to season ticket holders for the original Penn State game. They'll sell this Ford Field game as a standalone game. Seems like the future of college football is here now for the Big Ten. Yeah, and this this is part of the Kevin Warren fiasco. This, uh, you know, they said there was some horse trading that went on uh, because, again, you know, Michigan Ohio State don't want to play night games in the last month of the season, uh, and so as a concession, they um, they ended up, uh, you know, doing this game and and making it happen, and uh, you know, having it as a standalone, and the Big Ten is just trying to scramble and try to wiggle their way into a position where they can make make tv happy nbc wants this game uh that they can make both fan bases happy and not piss off an ohio state uh booster or a president and uh, not piss off michigan either i guess it works we'll keep an eye on it that is the five and five well done Stephen. uh leave it here i have so much i want to share with you i want you here for it well uh boston miami still ongoing in uh in their uh, NBA playoff series, uh, Miami leads the series three games to one. Tim Legler, uh, talking on the Dan Patrick Show today, said it doesn't matter who comes out of the East. Thinks it's Denver's year. I don't care who comes out of the East. Denver's going to win the championship. And the reason is because there's no personnel, scheme, or defensive energy, amount of defensive energy that affects Jokic, he's not affected by it. You put a smaller guy on him that's athletic, he makes those guys look silly because he just overwhelms them with his size and touch. You put a bigger guy on him, well, now you got to chase him all over the perimeter while he runs 87 dribble handoffs and picks and pops and and, and spends so much time on the perimeter that he makes bigs like a fish out of water out there guarding him so much. You can't scheme him because you can't double him effectively anywhere on the floor because of his size and his mind in reading where the ball should go and then getting it there with velocity. Is, it, is he saying he's unguardable? Is he saying that this is over? Uh, you know, certainly Miami as an eight seed is an unlikely, uh, unlikely participant in the NBA Finals, but here they are. They are one win away. Uh, from uh, sealing this thing is game five in the series is uh, coming up tomorrow and uh, potential game six on Saturday. Steven, is he saying it's just Denver's year? I think he is. And, you know, he may be right with Jokic. Like, he he kind of is unguardable. There's no good way to guard him because he's such a good passer, and he can pass from any angle. I mean, we've seen passes from outside the three-point line. We see passes from in the paint. Like, it doesn't matter. This guy is one of one, and we always talk about unicorns. Like, this guy's a unicorn. This guy, there's probably not going to be another guy like him. There was never a guy like him before, and he's so good inside at finishing. He can shoot the three when he has to. Like, I don't know what you do to this guy. He, he dominated Anthony Davis, who I think is one of the better big defenders in the NBA. If Miami is to make the NBA Finals, I don't think they have a chance. I, I think Boston has a chance to beat them because they have the start. Wait, are you saying Boston – has a better chance to beat Denver. the Denver Nuggets than the Miami Heat does. I do. I think that. I, I think Boston is much better than Miami. Uh, I talent wise, like I don't understand how they're losing this series by so much. I don't know how Miami's doing it to be honest. I don't. I don't. They haven't been a good team all season long till the playoffs. So I really think Boston has a better chance of beating Denver. But I think Legs is right. I think Denver's going to walk away with the NBA championship. 
and uh, it may not even be that many games. Like they might, you know, we we talked about the parity in the NBA this season. Mm-hmm. We just we just ignore Denver. We acted like, well, they haven't done it before. We can't believe it. We, you know, we don't can't believe it till we see it. And I I even said that. Like I couldn't believe it till I saw it. Well, I'm seeing it now, and it seems like Denver may just be the best team in the NBA. They're not going to go anywhere either. Like they have all their guys locked in. It, this could be a dynasty in the waiting, John. I don't think it'll be a dynasty because the NBA is weird like that. But man, they got a lot of young guys that are still building. And uh, Jokic, he may be the best player in the NBA right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, I'm looking at these playoffs. There's a number of reasons why I'm encouraged with what I'm seeing. I like that we're watching an eight seed that, you know, caught lightning in a bottle and finds itself within a win of getting to the finals. That's fun. It's different. You know, it's this is not the, hey, it's going to be the Warriors and the Miami Heat from several years ago but, when my – LeBron took his talents to South Beach. I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you yeah. think it could be bad for the NBA that an eight seed and the Lakers as a seven seed did this? Because now it's going to give hope to all these fan bases. I can see it already next year, John. Blazers mm-hmm. get the eight seed. Hey, you know what? The Heat, they got to the NBA Finals. Why can't Dame do the same thing? I, I think the Heat are such an outlier with Eric Spolstra being the best coach, having Pat Riley maybe the best you know front office guy. Like They are one of a kind, the Miami Heat are. I don't think anyone can replicate that, and I just feel like now every team that gets in the play-in feels like they have a chance at the NBA Finals and it's just unattainable. I think it's good. I don't see a downside to it because, to me, it feels like in Major League Baseball, we've seen wild-card teams get to the World Series and win it. There was a series of them that, that just played well and it happens. In the NFL, we've seen some teams that, you know, uh, the New York Giants one year, I think they were like 9-7 uh, and seven, at the end of the regular season and made the Super Bowl. Like it, you know, I think it's good for the league. I think it does give hope. And I think sports, you know, talk about what sports is rooted in. Sports is rooted in, you know, uh, those universal themes that we talk about. Like yesterday, I was talking about literature and man versus nature, man versus himself. It's man versus himself, and it's man versus man in the NFL and in sports. And, and I mean man and woman, okay? So don't at me. But it, I also think that, you know, there's an element to the NFL and Major League Baseball that is really exciting in that the season starts and pretty much everybody feels like they've got a shot. Like, you just don't know. They might put it together. And in in the NBA, it hasn't felt that way historically. And I know because I live in this market and I work in this market and I feel for the fans in Portland who start the season going, you know, Maybe it'll be exciting. Maybe the what did we say at the beginning of this year? We just want them to be entertaining, you know. Just want them to be entertaining. And they couldn't well, even do that. Yeah, but if but if a seven seed and an eight seed get can get to the conference finals, all of a sudden you go, hey, you know, there can be a move made at the trade deadline that can set you up. And you and I think you're right about Eric Spolstra being, you know, he's he has some secret sauce going on there. But I also think that you know. Sports is rooted in hope, and hope is not a bad thing, you know? And I think it it really is kind of at the center of everything that we talk about when we talk about what is great entertainment and what are sports supposed to do. Well, it's easy to get your eye off the bulb and start to think about, um, you know, you, you can get your eye off the bulb quickly and start to think about, well, it's about revenue. It's about winning championships. It's about, you know, uh, making sure that uh, your team matters. It's, you know, 
It's about the amount of money they spend. And then you forget that, like, sometimes sports feels too much like real life. That's what's happening with college football. See, people used to say to me, what sport do you like to cover the most? Or what's your favorite sport? It's kind of that conversation that I end up in, in a million times at a wedding or in an elevator where people go, you know, hey, what's your favorite sport? Because it's almost like they don't have anything to say to me that's real. So they'll say that, you know, and and the conversation ends up being about, well, I love college sports because the kids aren't jaded yet. There's not as much money involved in it, and they don't have a publicist and an agent telling them what to say. They're not totally consumed with their own brand and making sure that they don't say the wrong thing. Not yet, anyway. And and now I'm watching college athletics not feel that way. And I think that part of that is not good. So I, I don't see any downside. Do you see downside to the fact, like, only that you think – you think it's not realistic. You don't have LeBron. You don't have Eric Spolstra. You're not getting to the conference finals as a seven or an eight. Right. That That's my point is that the Lakers had Anthony Davis and LeBron James playing at the best that he's played all season. Like, those guys have proven to be really good. The Lakers got a lot of depth that really helped in the playoffs. And the Heat, they're they're an alien. I don't know how they do it, but Eric Spolstra has done it numerous times. Like, I just feel like with Portland, they're still so far away that, like, if they do make a trade for the third pick in the draft for whether it is a Jalen Brown or Mikel Bridges, like what is the upside? Is it going to be to be the sixth seed? And then you got to hope in the playoffs, they go some magical run and Dame goes like Jimmy Butler. Like, I just don't think that's realistic. And I feel like it's going to jade some fans away from wanting to use the draft pick. Cause I'm, I'm all for using the draft pick, John, you know, this, I want the Blazers to draft a player, the third pick in the draft. I don't think you pass up this option, but right now it seems like the Blazers you know, based off what they've put out there, what the, what they're saying, it seems like they want to trade the draft pick, and I think it, I think it's jading it, and I think the Miami Heat run, the Lakers run, is helping that decision of saying, you know what, we can sell this to the fans and say, all we gotta do is get in the end of the dance. All we gotta do is get there because we got Dame. Well, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that the Blazers have that kind of chance. I think the Blazers need a long view of things, and I keep asking myself. What would the San Antonio Spurs do here? And it's true. The Spurs have twice struck lightning in in the NBA draft lottery. And I, I'm a big believer in there aren't accidents. I'm not saying that the Spurs willed themselves into the one pick. But I'm just saying that we all know they're getting Victor Wembanyama. Okay? Here's what's different. Here's what why I think, you know, the Blazers, if the Blazers are serious about winning, they should go off into not just basketball, but into all sports settings and study franchises across sports who are not in premium markets who have had success. And they should come away and go, okay, what did you learn? Like Joe Cronin should be out there, not now while he's drafting players, but you know, in a lull in his season or his, you know, some assistant within the organization should be doing this. But I think, you know, it's interesting to me that there was a contingent of sports teams that came to Portland that studied the Timbers, okay? There was a whole bunch of these sports teams that came, franchises in other sports, Major League Baseball, the NFL. They they wanted to study what the Timbers franchise was doing, you know, in its heyday before Merritt Paulson, you know, embarrassed himself. So what were they doing? What were they doing right? How did they engage with fans? So they studied it, and, and you know, you know what the Timbers did? 
They went off to Green Bay. They were studying the Packers early on. What are the Packers doing? How do they create the atmosphere for Lambeau Field? How do they connect with their fan base? How do they make people feel like they're part of it? And, you know, it's interesting there. I, if I'm the Blazers, I think they should study uh, other sports franchises and see what they're doing. And I want to open that up to our listeners now. So as I say that, if you're going to study a sports franchise or two, any sport, NFL, Major League Baseball, MLS, uh, you know, NHL, NFL, whatever, you know, any sport, NBA, or college program, where do you go study? Where would you, you could go to a couple few places. Where would you go? What would you see? Where would, you know, you've got unlimited budget. I'm going to send you off to study some sports franchises. Where are you going? Could be anywhere in the world. Where are you going? Who do you want to learn from? And if you're, let's just say it's the Trailblazers. Who should they be studying? I would think that the Blazers, one of the places they'd want to go would be to go to San Antonio and see, okay, what are the Spurs doing? What is the culture of the Spurs organization? And I can tell you as a media member who's been in the San Antonio Spurs locker room that you walk in there and it's not like other locker rooms. There's, there's little things in that Spurs locker room uh, from literally quotes on the walls to pictures that are on the walls, to the layout of the locker room and where the star players dress and don't dress that are very intentional. And I'm, I, you know, I've been in the Blazers locker room plenty of times. I haven't felt that in the Blazers locker room. I'm not saying that the Blazers couldn't get it, but you know, some of it may have to do with the fact that the Spurs had Tim Duncan, sure. But I, I want to believe that Greg Popovich, R.C. Buford at the time, um, and it, they had figured something out that others had not. And I think it's worth studying. So I'm going to put this out to the listeners. Let's just say you're advising the Blazers. What sports organizations nationally, internationally, should they be studying? I'm going to give you a few of my selections or my ideas. I want yours too. 503-417-7575. Who's doing it right? <laughs> Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The Los Angeles Dodgers, the New York Yankees, the Dallas Cowboys, hell, uh, you know, the Lakers. Uh, there are some franchises in sports that have had success, but they have inherent advantages. There are other franchises that uh, play with some disadvantages, and yet they also have success. Those are the teams and those are the entities that I think we can learn more from. I think we can learn more from watching the San Antonio Spurs than we can learn from watching the Lakers. It's really easy to see how the Lakers or the Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys win when they win. Uh, They've got advantages. And uh, I think it's different, though, when you look at, Sports franchises, particularly in the NFL, where there is a hard salary cap, everybody has the same amount of money to spend. There's a very uh, equitable way that the talent is dispersed. The draft is, you know, you pick an inverse order of your record the year before. The schedule, the teams with the best records get the hardest schedule the next year. It it, it makes sense that there's parity, but yet some teams 
win and win and win and others don't. And I think you need to pay attention to that. I think you need to do it in baseball as well. You tell me, if the Blazers are going to learn from other sports franchises, where should they go learn? 503-417-7575 is the number. I'll give you a couple of mine. I want to go to the phone lines first. Eric's in Portland. Eric, what do you got? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. First time uh, caller, long time listener. Um, I got a rare one for you, but any soccer fan would totally recognize this team. Um, how about Ajax out of Amsterdam? They're known for having a limited budget and really excelling with um, their staff and the rare finds they uh, get. And, and they end up selling to all the major clubs because of their limited budget, but are always competitive in soccer and any level. And even their head uh, coach from uh, two years ago is now the Manchester United head coach. So um, they're absolutely crush it and have for 30, 40 years doing this. What do you think, what do you think their system. secret is there? Is it culture? Is it ownership? You know, because it's you're culture, right. Yeah, go ahead. Culture, definitely. And just um, previous players coming back to the team and the style of soccer they play. Um, I mean, numerous clubs. Um, try to compete with them, and they in their division they always are at the top of the class. And in terms of their player development, they find all these young kids all around the world, and they bring them in, and and they really excel with them. I mean, even when they, the Ajax manager left uh, Man U, he brought along numerous players along with them, and now all of a sudden Man U's much better than they were last year, or at least way more competitive. So. Um, they just do it with a limited budget, and then they sell off all their top players because they can't pay them, and they're still competitive always. Um, yeah. So I think they've been doing this for 40 freaking years, and they really excel at it. They're good at it, and I'm going to guarantee you it comes from ownership if it's been going on for 40 years. That's not a GM. That's not a coach. Why? Because people try to steal their trade secrets by doing what? Hiring away their GM and coach. Um, I know nothing about that franchise, but I can tell you what it's about. Um, I think college football's got some great examples. Hell, I would even look at the Oregon State Beavers and Jonathan Smith if I was the Blazers. And I'm not saying that, that you can have a direct correlation between the NBA and college football, but are the Blazers not a cor- like correlated in some way as a small market team competing against large market teams, trying to build from within, trying to create good culture, I don't know. If I'm Joe Cronin and I am Trailblazers, Inc., I'm going, you know what, let's go down to Oregon State and spend a couple days just watching Jonathan Smith and talking with him and talking with his director of football operations and studying what Oregon State's doing because, hmm, they won 10 games last season and they did it with fewer resources and they played nose-to-nose with USC and Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams and... Gosh, they had significantly fewer resources in that Civil War football game, and yet, man, the fourth quarter, they looked like marginal, like they were way better than Oregon. I would, I would go down and spend that time if I was the Trailblazers. Here's an here's an interesting stat that I looked up during the commercial break. I, w- I was looking at NFL teams because, you know, the Patriots, the Packers, the Chiefs, the Steelers, the Seahawks, they have as much money as. Anybody else in the league, they all have the same salary cap in the NFL. It's a hard salary cap. It's not like the NBA where you can go above and beyond. But why is it that the Cleveland Browns, the New York Jets, and the Jacksonville Jaguars 
have combined to win only about 33% of their games in the last decade. That's right. They are, they are currently in the last decade, those three franchises, running at a clip of about 33% win percentage. Raiders are not far behind. Raiders are at 41. So how is it that the New England Patriots, the Green Bay Packers, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Seattle Seahawks have the best records in the NFL since 2010? 2010 to last season, those five franchises have the best record. You know what's interesting about them? New England is, you know, you could explain it as Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, 11 playoff appearances in the span between 2010 and 2022, uh, 16 playoff wins, three Super Bowl titles. You could say, all right, it's Tom Brady, throw him out. Like, you know, yeah, okay, you get the best player in the league, uh, you know, it makes it easier. Okay, let's throw the Patriots out. How about the Packers? What's their deal? Ten times out of 11 seasons, they've made the playoffs. They won a Super Bowl. Um, they have the second-best record in the NFL from 2010 to 2022. You know, maybe you say, hey, it's a combination of uh, the move from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. Uh, but there is something culture-wise going on with the Packers organization that was happening before Aaron Rodgers and it will happen after Aaron Rodgers. I'd be interested in that. If I was a sports franchise, I'd spend some time in Green Bay. I'd go during the NFL season and spend some time in Green Bay. The Chiefs are interesting. Patrick Mahomes certainly has helped the Chiefs. But there was something about the Chiefs seeing Patrick Mahomes, using the draft pick on him the way they did, even though they had Alex Smith at quarterback. Why was it that the Kansas City Chiefs were able to do the thing that the Blazers couldn't do back in the day? Remember, the Blazers had Clyde Drexler. They didn't need Michael Jordan. You know, Blazers, they, they didn't need Jordan. They needed a center. Blazers uh, uh, make a mistake or, you know, they have, you know, if you look back at the Blazers organization, it was, you know, they needed the big man. Well, the Chiefs didn't need a quarterback. They had Alex Smith. He was coming off a Pro Bowl. And yet they drafted Patrick Mahomes. Why? Why were they able to do that? It was the same thing the Packers did. They had Brett Favre. Why were they able to say, hey, you know what? It's time to get a quarterback. There's something going on organizationally with those teams. Maybe it's ownership. Maybe it's general manager. Maybe it's head coach. But I'm certainly interested in it. Pittsburgh Steelers, they have the fourth best record in the NFL since 2010. I'd go check them out too. Same reason. I'd be interested. Is it Mike Tallman? Is it a coach? Is it coming from ownership? Is it that congruency of vision that we have talked about over the years? I'm really interested in that. Seahawks, if you're the Blazers, there is an interesting correlation going on because you're owned by the same entity, and yet the Seahawks seem to operate differently than the Blazers. I think I know what it is, the difference between the Seahawks and the Blazers when it comes to Paul Allen's ownership, but I still would want to look at it, and it would be an interesting study. And I'm sure the Vulcans have internally looked at it. But my perception of the Seattle Seahawks versus the Blazers has largely been that Paul Allen, when he was alive, did not fashion himself an NFL expert. He did not. He gave an interview to the New York Times when the Seahawks were in the Super Bowl, and he said it. He said it out loud. He said, I really don't know a lot about football. I'm just more of a fan 
I know more about basketball. I'm more involved. And I cringed, and I went, whoa, maybe he shouldn't have been more involved. Is Burt Cold's presence in the Blazers organization a problem? Because the Seattle Seahawks, what they've done is turn the franchise over to Pete Carroll and John Schneider, and they've, and they've kind of left them alone to work. Look, Pete Carroll, John Schneider, Chauncey Billups, Joe Cronin. Pete Carroll compared to Chauncey Billups. John Schneider compared to Joe Cronin. I see a difference there. Blazers should be looking at that. We'll be back with another show tomorrow. Grab a podcast, The Bald Face Truth. Not here for a long time, just a good time.